Welcome. This is the Art Grind Podcast. This is a podcast run by artists for artists where we talk about what it means to be one. My name is Sophia Kayafis. I'm Marshall Jones. And we're here with our producer, Tun Miai. We're three artists that live and work in New York City. And this is being recorded on the fly in between our many jobs and creative endeavors. We use this podcast to ground us in a space where there are so many ways to, to lose yourself. So join us. We have real conversations with artists we admire on the Art Grind. Hello there, listeners. On this week's episode, we interviewed a writer, Sarah Schmerler. She's a journalist, an art critic for the New York Times, and an art educator of 26 years who specializes in helping artists write about themselves. She's a creative catalyst, you could say. Now, Sarah is really gifted at connecting the relationship between the written language and the pictorial language. So I wanted to have her on the show so you could experience for yourself her knack for conceptual thinking and art speak. She's an incredible communicator, full of wit, charisma, and a wealth of art-making insight that I imagine you'll enjoy just as much as Marshall and I did. Without further ado, the woman with the ability to witness artists in a constant state of becoming the inconspicuous genius, Sarah Schmerler. Who are you as a creative person? Oh, golly. Um, um, I'm kind of a mystic. A mystic? Yeah. A word mystic? Um, I use the words to get in touch with that flash of spirit that is the mystical creative thing and for me the words come mm. and that's the medium I use I made some notes like what am I and I decided you know I'm just more of an ingredient I'm like a spice or like or an enzyme you know I don't know if I'm a thing but I'm another thing that helps other people activate their thing I love that Ooh. it's so true that's awesome. And, and that's why you, yeah. you had to be on this show. I help other people activate their creative, you know, inner potential. So the stuff you don't get from the book, you know, you're, you're, you can read about things. You can be, you can get all this received knowledge about things. This is how I write. This is how I do an artist statement. This is how I get through school. This is how I, you know, but like sometimes you need that thing to make it all kind of coagulate or mm -hmm. gel or, you know, maybe I'm a coagulant. And so Catalyst. I try to be that thing that's not the ingredient and in all the other stuff. Mm -hmm. And I, then, how do you think you do that? Um, well, it's just my calling. So, you know, just the same way you can't justify or understand how you do what you do. You like, because I'm compelled to do that. That's why, you know, it's just floated to the surface of my life. I've done other things. And this is the thing that always seems to be on the menu, everybody's menu. They're hungry for that. And mm -hmm. they kind of cast me in that role eventually, you know, and I just... You I'm, always rise to I it. I rise yeah. to that. I'm good. I'm kind of... A kind of a floaty, you know, thing. So how do I do it? Um, largely through teaching, through writing and through teaching. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's kind of a, it's kind of a partnership, you know? I mean, can I mention that you're my student? Absolutely. Okay, so, so, so <laughs> this is really wonderful because Sophia was my student. Mm. And then she 
watched me teach not once but twice more the same damn class as my teaching assistant. So she sat through. And I watched her teaching. Watched me teaching. So mm. first she was the Student. receiver, mm. ostensibly. And then she was my, you know, uh, buddy, you know, in a buddy film. You were like in the other side of the, you know, next to me in the car seat. It's you a know. closer look. But I was still closer look. Yeah. But you were watching me teach. And I hope I was showing you some That's of my amazing. tricks, right? Yeah. About how I, you know, how I made the donuts. And then you did it again. <laughs> and I'm like, God, this woman can't keep doing this. She's going to get so bored of this class. You know, there's no more oh, secrets. No, but, but it was great. But I guess I'm mentioning this as, to make a point, is that usually I'm in the driver's seat. You know, I'm the interviewer. I've been a journalist for 25 years. I've written for magazines and newspapers. I'm interviewing the artist. I'm like, so, Mr. Coons, why are you doing this? So, so-and-so, you know. Mm-hmm. And I'm not used to having it being flipped. Or I'm the teacher. And I'm not used to being, like, the subject. So it's it's so exciting that you're here. Exquisitely uncomfortable for me. <laughs> she, just so you know, listeners, Sarah Schmerler is here. We're a, you're listening to the Art Grind podcast right now. <laughs> and she has made her uh, introduction for herself. <laughs> and I'm so sorry that you had to do it, but I just want to point out that she's also brought a few positive notes. Notes. Um, just one pile. Just very Schmiller of you. Very I love that. Notes are my <laughs> notes are my one of my my um, wonderful exquisite forms of expressing myself. I never am without a pen. I write standing up on the subway or, <laughs> you know, in line. Yeah, I brought my notes. So just as I I feign discomfort with being the subject, here I am. You know, right? You know, taking over. So and it's really actually it's kind of wonderful because it's like a stage of life. So it's like I'm exquisitely you know, the, it's uncomfortable, but it's, what's beautiful is, you know, that cliche, you know, by my, by my students, I am taught. And so it's just kind of beautiful that it's a student who's turning, former student who's turning the tides on me. And that's exactly what you want. You know, when you're a teacher, you want that student to not be the student. Mm. Well, so I'm a little at odds, you know, I'm like, I'm a little, a little nervous. I'm like, I don't know oh, no. if I translate into subject. Um, I see you as a person. I see you as a person. And I think that as a teacher, you've always... I'm not a spice. I'm a person. (laughs) Even as a teacher, you presented yourself as, I am am another human being that thinks Mm. with you in this room. Mm. I'm not above you. We are the Mm. same. Mm. Let's talk. And so you always made yourself extremely available and Mm. very... um, Which is true and also a big lie. But it was cutting. It was very cutting the way that you spoke to us and you made us remember and you, and you kind of shook us into ourselves. Yeah, shook you into yourselves. Yeah, and I Teaching always as, remember that. as vibrant, as, 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 as vigorous movement. I like that. <laughs> well, that's what I want to know. So maybe I'll ask Sophia this. How did she shake you into yourself? Nice one. She said to us, you are here and you are artists and you make things because you are compelled to. She said that. Mm. She said, we're going we're gonna to write about why we do this um, and I'm going to help you. And that, I mean, that was all I really needed to get. <laughs> but she, she had us do certain exercises. She had us write for seven minutes keep distilling distillation was a big concept in the class oh um i don't remember this <laughs> i'm sorry i mean it must have been made up i'm, I'm taking notes on myself <laughs> i'm like, like these are good ideas i should bring these back because you know the students misunderstand you in an interesting way 
fascinating. Didn't I say that in class? Like, I want to hear what you think my assignment is because I want to hear how you misunderstood it. <laughs> yeah. Because it's so good. And it, yeah, distillation. Do, like, is that something you do believe in, distillation? I don't think so. <laughs> I don't know. But well, that's what she, but the point is, that's what Sophia, that's what Sophia needed. Uh-huh. So that's what she heard. That's what I heard. Mm-hmm. What's more important, you know, doing a good job, and this is something that I think Sophia and I could probably agree on this too. What's important, thinking you're perfect and making that, you know, complying with some set of criteria, you know, what's more important or actually freaking succeeding in doing it? You know, what's more important, knowing that there's an arrow stuck in your heart or pulling it out to be a Buddhist? You know? Say that again. I, I don't Say understand. Say that again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it more important to be able to like measure? And I got this, I think, from an artist named David Taylor with whom I met, with whom I went to um, graduate school, painting school at Pratt, got my MFA. So I want to give credit where credit is due. Anyway, if you're afflicted with something and you need help with it, right? You've got this, this man, like this parable, this man is this arrow, like through his heart, through his chest, and it's wounding him. Should he assess the size of the arrow and the girth of the arrow and how it's going through his chest or should he pull it out? Mm-hmm. You know, mm. so it is important. Like, I mean, I know it sounds kind of mystical, but I'm really much more about like, you know, I, I don't mean it mean to be too relationshipy, but like I talk about relationships a lot. You know, I think in 2015, 2016, I started talking about relationships. If you're in a relationship with someone, a loving relationship with that person, you can argue with them and you can have a point, right? You can be right, but that doesn't mean that 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 you're going to. You could be right, but very often when you're right, you're alone. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, do you want to be right? Or do you want to be with this person? What's more important is the relationship or your rectitude? Mm, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the student has the onus upon them that they've got to accomplish something, right? They want to, or they wouldn't be in the class. They wouldn't be meeting you in this room. And that's a burden. That's an onus. They have to accomplish it. But they may not be able to say what that thing is. So a lot of the time you have to make a space, like a little vacuum for them to be able to even phrase or get in touch with what it is they need to accomplish. So Sophia is a great student. She gave me a lot of credit for this. A lot of times students don't know what they got out of the class or what you taught them. Yeah, they don't know. Until a long time later or even ever. But what they do is they change their practice. Mm-hmm. Mm. Which is what you want, you know? Yeah, absolutely. You want them to be, okay, they're taking a class. It's critical studies. I don't teach just to be clear. Like, I'm not in the other parts of the school. This is the only class, I think, in the school where you don't physically make your artwork. You're not at an easel. You're not with a chisel in your hand. You're not making a video, right? It's not a practicum class. It's not a studio class. And yet I think that the unspoken um, learning objective part of it isn't just to write about your work, but to have your work grow. It's part of the investigation. You investigate, yeah. You did, you wrote good papers, right? They wrote better papers. But even the paper itself, what's the point of the paper? The paper's about the work. Mm-hmm. The paper's about the process. The paper's about the practice. So, And for some of us, the paper became part of the process. Yeah. So then do you have a preference in what students are doing do you have a certain aesthetic that you're looking for you just looking to activate any student like I say I'm an enzyme so part of the situation like Sophia said is is trying to assess is 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 creating that partnership 
or trying to create that partnership with the student. And it's not like a touchy-feely, you know, you're not hugging them and you're not really getting to know them on this personal level. It's a, an, in a personal way, you know, it's a very different, it's a special and I think almost sacred relationship that there is in the classroom where mm -hmm. you're not a friend, but you're definitely a support. You're, and I try to set it up where I'm not, there's not a hegemony of right and wrong. Like I am not uh, an autocrat. I'm not, I'm not the source of truth, mm -hmm. but I am here to veto or otherwise um, adjust you when I feel that you're going astray or to direct you and to sometimes suggest things to you depending. So it's a, it is kind of, let's just let's call it a partnership. Okay. So you kind of have to smell out, you know, you kind of have to sense where that student is. And, and the way to do that and use writing, so it's a writing class. I mean, I use a lot of writing. I think a lot of other teachers in different sections don't use writing as this tool. So when the student writes for me, they tell me whether they realize it or not a great deal about themselves, mm -hmm. about their limitations or what they perceive to be their limitations. So just simply the five minute or seven minute, whatever that was for you in yeah. that semester. In other so semesters, I do powerful. different things. She then read it, right? You had to read it out loud. And that's the in key. Front of the class. That's more the key. Not what she wrote, but like that she had to read it and be have it we witnessed. And then hear it hit the air and kind of oxidize. You know, when it hits the air, it oxidizes. And then I go, oh, she's in the room. And it's not her, it's her words. Does that make sense? It's amazing. Yeah, yeah it makes perfect sense. It's, it sounds like we're making a painting. Yeah. With words. It's a soundscape. A conceptual hate to say it. painting. It becomes conceptual. And so I'm more of an orchestrator necessarily than a arbiter, you know? I liked it that you also said witness. I think that's very important. It's to, key. Yeah. Yeah. To make something real. Like, so the students will read their five minutes. Have you ever had like a student cry when they're doing it or any? Not anything? usually the first class, but sure, I've definitely had people cry in class. It's a sign of great success. <laughs> I haven't had any tears in this semester. Sometimes it's sometimes, but no, I'm being facetious. Um, I'll tell you, I want to tell you a better, like, I want to tell you some of my secrets because this is a podcast, right? And I feel yes. like people shouldn't just hear about anecdotal things, even though right. that might be what podcasts are these days. I want to tell you a couple of teaching secrets. Yes. Okay. So, um like in subsequent semesters I've shown them I've given out two readings and asked students to read them like maybe a page each and I said to them you know read these things you know it's usually like I act like and also it's a lot of showmanship too so I was like Hannah like oh they're busy and they're sitting there totally awkward first day and they're ready to judge you and judge themselves and they're oh so smart but they're also so nervous and they know what's going to happen and they you know they know what they want so I'm like, oh, just take these pieces of paper. And somebody's handing them around. Okay, oh, read the pieces of paper. Tell me if you notice anything unusual about them, about the writing. Is anybody familiar with this? And I say what they are. I say, these are two excerpts. One is an excerpt, and I write it at the top. And it's just very like, I don't give any explanation, right? So right away, they're getting two things to read, and that's comforting to them. Oh, something to do. Okay. Okay, which you want to do, I think. Talking too much, they go to sleep. Right. Talking too much gets them more nervous sometimes. And it gets them into that place that's not that partnership. So what you want to do is you want to trick the little fuckers <laughs> into letting them be in the room with you. Letting themselves be in Can I say that? That's in the a room great way. With you. Right. So it's a little bit of a tricksterness, right? Letting themselves. So in this case, I gave them a, an excerpt. One was an excerpt from the book A Void 
by George Perec. It's I don't a know. it's a translation into English of a French novel. And the other one is an excerpt from Gadsby by Ernest Vincent Wright. I'm not sure of the dates. One was written in the 60s, one was written in the I don't know what. I'm sorry. I don't remember 40s, 30s. Excuse me. I don't know. Um and I don't explain it, but I do I don't give them like I tell them who wrote it, right? If nobody just looks up from that paper and goes, "Oh, I know this book." And you know, so far I've had nobody <laughs> know who the heck these writers are. They're not all that literate and well-read that they know. So you take a chance. They don't know the books. Eh, fine. They read it. And then you say to them, okay, and okay, first of all, reading right there. What is reading? Don't get me started. There's so many ways to read, right? People read, but that's bullshit. Like you say to a student, read this, take it home, do the reading, come back. They're reading it with their eyes. They're not reading it with your eyes. You're asking them to do something they don't know what you want because you're wanting them to read for some stuff that's pertinent and come with good questions. And but they you're might not telling be, them what's the pertinent You're not thing. really telling them how to perform. So that's a whole other discussion. That The crisis of writing, according to this theorist named Ellen Carrillo, who's a writing specialist, I forget, out of what university, I'm sorry. Are you writing these down, Sophia? C-A-R-I-L-L-O. And I've learned about her recently is that reading is, writing is visible, but reading is invisible. And <laughs> what you want to do is really talk about reading, because that's the crisis writing behind is, writing. That's good. Is that's that we don't teach reading. So in a way, implicit, I'm doing this. They read it, and then I say, what's unusual about it? And then if it's a good, let's say good, if it's a lively class, they say, the punctuation's weird. Really? Oh, that's interesting. There's so many commas. Is that something I'm supposed to say? That's great. Great observation. The vocabulary is off the charts. I don't know what a T-O-C-S-I-N toxin is. I don't know what a V-O-W, you know, V-O-Y-A-L is. You know, a voil or voil, toxin or toxin. There's repetitious sounds. Uh, somebody also say, oh, the writing's all about cognition. Like, it seems to be about thinking. They'll just say, it's weird. It's kind of weird language, isn't it? Funny, interesting vocabulary words, long sentences, lots of punctuation. And then I'll be like, well, is there anything that they both have in common that's weird? They come up with more things about childhood. About They come up with all this stuff, right? And I let them spool out like fish on the fishing line for a while. I let them go. And then after a while, I have to reel them in. And I'm like, you know, I try not to let them go too far because mm -hmm. there is a punchline. And I say... Okay, well, actually, that's all really good. Both of these are novels. One's a 50,000-word novel. One's many hundred pages. I've read one of them straight. They're, they're hundreds of pages long, written without the letter E. Right. Yeah, and you see your face. Both are without the letter E? Both without the letter E. Wow. And I stress... And that's I, a hard and I, letter to avoid. Right. And one's written in French and translated into English without E. Okay, and so you see your eyes kind of popped, right? So that's the trick. That's what you want. You want... Sometimes there's a sharp intake of air the students go what and then immediately what they do if they're good you can also spot the students that you're going to be enjoying because they go back and they look again and they look at the words and they go to see and like to check it out hmm. and they read again which is what you want see that's hermeneutics reading again reading for meanings that aren't apparent to unveil it unveiling something that i is i did it and also the feeling of letting yourself feel stupid in public you didn't get it it was staring you in the face and you didn't mm. see it it's so important and no one else did either 
Mm. That reminds me of uh, in one of Kerouac's books. He was like, it was a math class at one of his first days in in college, and it was. Um, he said, you know, what is. He just starts spouting these numbers like 34, 86, 96, and all this, and the students just stared at this forever. And it was just the the number one train line stops, you know? Yeah. And it was the same like trick that you're talking about. In just a way, to, yeah, it's a pattern. Show, show them to see the pattern. So they were trying to find, I mean, probably it was at Columbia, so probably most people took the number one train up there anyway. Mm. So it was trying to get them, they were all try to focus so hard on math stuff. What mm. could this mean? Yeah. And it was just the train you were just on. Right. <laughs> they were reading for something because the context in which they were being asked was in a mathematics class and not on the platform where they would say, okay, here's the stops. Exactly. So you have expectations and you should, you, it's human to have expectations. But even as an artist, I feel like what you've described how you've how you've given your students this thing in this beautiful way you've made them you've unveiled you've shown them to look again that is the the role of the artist in society to make paintings you have to do that right you tell me is that what i you mean that, do? i mean that's exciting to me it kind of feels kind of meta that i i love that about the way you teach and that's the way i see myself as a painter mm-hmm as a, as another catalyst. Mm. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. Could you yeah. talk about that? Well, you could. I'm just trying to give you, I don't really know. Cause I feel like, you know, if you think that teaching is an art in some level, okay. Mm. I'm giving you raw materials. You know, I'm giving you, I'm again, I'm, I would like to stay, I know it sounds like really objective, I'd like to stay out of opinion giving because the student is so, like the person who hears the thing, and I know it sounds like, what's his name, Gurdjieff, I can never remember his name, the mystic, like they come away from it with what they, they, they think it means, whereas I'm using it as a kind of a tool to get done what I need to get done in the room and to, to get some buy-in and, and then I just I latch it onto anything like a locomotive train you know it's like this train's carrying a peanuts right I'm going to latch it onto this lesson this it's train's an carrying energy. And it's like an energy or it's like a thing that I and I conceived of it one day you know and I went you know and I was reading about the Olippo group and I was reading about the surrealists and I'm like this is their branch and I went this has a lot of potential because then an artist is going to say that's exactly what I do is that what I do with my work like ask people to reinvestigate reality or to look again at a form or to come again. And I would be like, I don't know if that's what Mondrian was doing, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. I don't know if that's what a purely plastic, you know, artist, you know, is doing. You're, you, you, you work with imagery in a very particular way. You, your work is mystical and it's also about the street. It's also about real people. It's also about real. And I would say yes, but it's not going to be an answer that's true for every artist. Yeah. That you ask people to reinvestigate. Certainly, an artwork to have legs should be like a river you go into, you know, you don't go into the same river twice. You should be able to look at it again with that expectation as you, 
as you as something else, as you the math student, as you the subway rider, Mm -hmm. as you the mother, as you the lover, you should go into that thing. And it's always going to hold some sixth sense or some other quality there for you to find. So how do you, how do you, how do you create art that does that? Because I wouldn't imagine all art does that. How do you create art that's more than the sum of its parts? I mean, some art will more successfully do that. Some art will less successfully do that. But I think that to call it art already, it kind of has to do that. Oh, so that's like the, that's the, mm, that's, that's the entry. Kind of, that's the definition of art. I think you you can't take the gluten out of this recipe. You know, I feel like that's oh, it. Oh, that's so interesting. So what's, what's a, what's a piece of art that really does that for you? Has that, that unfolding, you're seeing new, the lack of E's or Z's every time you look at it. Jesus, anything that's good, any great masterpiece, anybody from, <laughs> from, you know, Van Eyck or to Goya to, um, you know, one of these guys that comes to the academy and shows, you know, I'm not remembering their names to a, well, Will, you know, a, Will Cotton. I was thinking of Will Cotton. Yeah, I don't look at a lot of him. It's funny that it comes out like that to an Ashley Bickerton. I mean, I, some of this is based on taste, you mm-hmm. know, so if you're asking me for my taste. But, but um, yeah, I, I guess if I go to the Met, I go to the really old stuff. What makes a great painting? Oh, God. Artists. Um, <laughs> what makes a great painting? All right. What makes a, a great piece of art? You've looked at a lot of different kinds of art yeah. besides paintings. Um, that ability, like we just described, to be whatever it is that I need it to be at that time or that I can always find some, some new reading in it that I had not found before, that it always welcomes me at whatever age or stage of life I'm in. Mm. Um, Okay, so let's take, is it Van Eyck's The Last Judgment? All right, because I recently saw that at the Met. I revisited it, and that was in a painting book by H.W. Jansen and his wife, I think Nora Jansen. And that was the first book, that was the thing that turned me on to, like, looking at art when Mm. I was a kid, because there were no museums around. I grew up in South Florida. My parents weren't very into art. And, you know, the closest museum was a science museum an hour and a half, two hours away. And there was a skeleton that rode a bicycle if you put a quarter in. You know, I would go and put a quarter in. And watch. I loved watching that skeleton ride that bicycle. But there weren't a whole it's lot of great paintings, you know. It's great every time. And I had this somebody, somebody smart, I don't know who, sent me this book. So I would look at things like the Mona Lisa, you know, or I would look at Ang, or I would look at, you know, The Last Judgment. So that, that painting is wild, right? And it's also in pre-production, you know. And it's also pretty small when you get up to it in real life. So it's this mm. jewel-like thing. Mm-hmm. And so when I was a kid, yeah. you know, I think hell really turned me on and all the bodies and, you know, the gnarliness of it. And mm-hmm. and, and I think that's still kind of the best part, you know, yeah. for me <laughs> in a way. Um, but I saw it again, you know, and maybe this time for me it was that incredible scale that I didn't expect, you know, the smallness. or Maybe it was the gem-like color or maybe it was Christ's expression, or maybe it was the juxtaposition of all the people in heaven and the rigidity and the, you know, versus that darkness. And I found myself less excited by the darkness than I did as a, you know, 10-year-old, you know, back then. I I was, because you were seeing some nudity in it, and there's people that are, like, tormented. And 
I don't know. I was grooving more on the on the redemption than the than the torment. You know, this mm. time when I when you you've had that experience. You know, or you've gone to MoMA, and you know where your favorite paintings are. But then this other one with like little smoke finger. You know, little beckons to you. You know, like pie on the windowsill. Like Annie Lamott says, "Come look at me," and you're like, "Damn you, you Juan Gris." I have to look at you now, you know, and it comes and you look at it and it's just the best thing ever, you know, just, it just satisfies where you are at that time and it speaks to you. And I'm sure the greed didn't know I would exist, you know, Mm -hmm. and it would be at MoMA. And I think that's really true of um, um, non-Western art and um, ritual art is that it was never meant to be taken from its site. Tomb art, mummies, pharaohs, Egyptian stuff. And there it is in this vitrine, you know, and it's lit up and you're walking around it and you're staring at this thing. And you're it's not even supposed to be there. You're not, and it says sometimes on the thing, this was for a ritual society that did not allow women to view this mask. And you're like, whoop, you know, I'm looking at the mask, you know. And it's just so the whole thing's messed up. Just the whole act of viewing is messed up. So I, I, I find I look more at ethnographic, if that's a term, you know, ritual objects from cultures that I may not know more now than when I was a kid and I was just fascinated by Western painting and mm. with people in it, you know. Um, I went through a portraiture phase, never used to like portraits, but then like a Goya was like made out of flesh instead of paint. I don't know, one day for me. And mm-hmm. I was like, this is a person. There's no time. <laughs> there is no time. Time. This is alive. This person, time has collapsed. The notion of generations are gone. The timelessness, you know, the Doctor Who feeling yeah. of a painting from the past. And my favorite, one of my favorite guys at the Met is the, um, the Kouros. I love the Greek and um, Roman wing. Okay. really restored it was nasty like many years ago and it got restored and the um the, the really early greek not just the greek but the really early greek stuff that's really egyptian the, Quiet. the statues yeah. yeah it's the stillness of them and yet they're smiling and they have a sense they're just their death smile happy death smile beauty beauty something between a portrait and an icon yeah yeah mm. it's that religious there's a system of belief around it. Yeah. I just like to that. look at it, you are in it. Yeah, you're in the system of belief. Why is it important to have a system of belief around art? Well, that object did, right? Because it was used as a grave marker for a young athlete who died young. Mm-hmm. And it was important for them. But for you, for you, the viewer. I happen to like it. But again, it comes back to what Sophia said in class, right? Maybe she's boiling it down, is it? We were learning art, my specialty is an artist statement writing, and I teach artists or help artists to write their statements, right? So I think I said that one day, like, all artist statements, no matter what you make, boil down to the same thing. Do you want to know what it is? And all the kids are like, yeah, yeah, I want to know what it is. And I was like, I make art because I am compelled to. Hmm. So the Greeks were compelled because that was their, you know, and the Everybody has ben this. Maria talks about that too. Yeah. They had to make that thing. That thing had to be made. Do you think there are better compulsions or more valid compulsions to make art and, and some might be lesser compulsions? Do you? Mm-hmm. 
sure there are artists who are in it for more for um, manufacturing. You know, they figured out a thing that they do well. We don't have to name their names, but the very famous, you know, artists throughout history that they find a niche, they find a style, and they kind of make an output in that style, and that's what they get stuck in, and they do that. Other artists that have a, you know, with fad, the work is valid for a while. Excuse me, it continues to be valid for as long as people want to believe in it, but it, it tends to gather dust bunnies you know around it and it gets dated and it when, doesn't have that goya when. like no no time has passed or time is irrelevant feeling to it right um so you can sense that i think that that after many decades pass and these days the just like with technology the shelf life and you know what do you call it so short. A, um, a, a short detention you know what do you call it when something becomes technology is replaced by other technology, obsolescence, that it's gotten even shorter. So like a few decades pass, and already you can see that that work doesn't feel important anymore. Because mm -hmm. may, maybe it didn't get to some sort of fundamental truth that was more of a, a whatever, a fleeting fad to some degree. It was the truth that was opinioned or, or, or posited on other factors that weren't, that were in flux. Mm. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, Joseph Campbell talks about a little bit about like stories that we keep telling each other over and over again aren't stories, it's like a little bit of reverse engineering. They just sort of get into the fabric of what humans are and just sort of tell them that more so than, than a, a relevant thought at the time, you know? I didn't realize he was, he was like the operating system behind my, my um, windows as a kid. One of the big operating systems that was, that was behind what I was doing, but I didn't know that that's what it was at the time. But really? so yeah, Joseph Campbell and stories is the stories that we say, how, say how you said it again. And that we oh, well, he, he just has an idea that, Stories that last, like what what we were talking about with, um, you know, art art that lasts, and a story would be the idea that maybe the Oedipal story keeps getting repeated because somehow it 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 is there's something about who we are in that story, and so people maintain an interest in it throughout generations mm -hmm. and other stories certainly get written and just fade away because they didn't really just tell us about who we are fundamentally mm -hmm. and yeah. his ideas those are the ones that would last i don't think you should feel bad if you're telling one of those stories again like a bard that's it, yeah yeah because the best things that you can tell people are the stuff that are worth repeating you know the good things are worth saying over again mm -hmm. um I, did I tell you the story about how I, about Star Wars when I first saw Star Wars as a little kid? I mean, as a teenager. I don't no, know. I want to hear that. 11, 10, 11. Okay, but this is a Joseph Campbell story, and I didn't, you know, I was a tween, or I don't know what I was, 1970, whatever, when it came out. And nobody had seen Star Wars before. I go to see Star Wars, and it blows my mind. I'm in the theater, like, oh my God. <laughs> and and um, I think I went back, like, I wanted to go back, like, two days later or something and see it again. I had no framework, no understanding, no, no knowledge of what I was about to see. Love science fiction. Okay, and my father, who's really been like the basis of my 
teaching career essentially he's kind mm-hmm. of like mm-hmm. my muse or i don't know what i'm kind of modeled anyway my father was this college professor of world religions but this polymath guy knew oh, everything wow. yeah knew everything you just ride in the car with him he could explain to you why the sky was blue he could talk to you about science and moisture droplets in the air bending light or he could tell you about you know different linguistic proto-indo-european you know and i'm a kid like okay so that's sumerian you know and i you know i'm just this kid and i had to get all this information not dumbed down because he didn't know how to talk to kids <laughs> he, he didn't even know how to you know well he's a difficult dad not not a warm man but very smart so <laughs> And he was really old, too. He was like my age now when I was born. You, both mm. your parents were Jewish? Both of my parents were extremely Jewish. And he was also a Talmud Chacham, a real like Hebrew scholar. Mm-hmm. Okay, So very intimidating. Not easy to hang out with. But mm. I loved him more than you know anything and, and full of knowledge. And always came up with some answer for everything. Right? So we didn't really hang out. He wasn't like a kind of a ball-playing dad. you know. So I go to see Star Wars, and I'm like, what happened, you know, from the, the moment it starts to the moment it's over? And I think this is the best thing. I'm going to go back again. Will you go with me? And he says, yes. And I'm like, wow, he's going to come. <laughs> We're going to go to the movies? I mean, I know this is like normal for most kids. But, uh, dad, I don't call him dad. You know, he's, he's going to come to the movies with me. And he sits through the whole thing, this kind of immense, you know, Eastern European, overeducated, five-language speaking presence. Doesn't say anything. <laughs> And afterwards, what is that? What did you think of it? He goes, oh, it's Joseph Campbell. And I didn't know what that was. He's like, oh, it's Joseph Campbell. And then he proceeded to say stuff like, so whose father is Darth Vader or something? And I was like, what do you mean? He goes, well, his name means Dark Father. I'm like, you know, later on, Empire came back. I was like, jeez. Because my dad, like, ruined (laughs) (laughs) No, and then he tells me about Zen and non-action and Tao. So what you're saying is like, he saw all those stories, but they're worth telling. Right, right. It's the quest. Mm-hmm. It's the hero's journey. Mm-hmm. So he was like, yeah, it's a hero's journey saga. You know, and of course, I just wanted to geek out and remember the names of droids and things. But think of how far it's taken that, you know, franchise and all mm-hmm. the good franchises out there. Why not tell the hero's journey? So when I go to class now and at CUNY and I say, what's the, they'll be like, this Kung Fu Panda. And I'm like, what's the story of Kung Fu Panda? And like, well, it's a guy, and he's kind of a schlub, and he's a schlamazole, he can't do it. But then there's a tiger, and he has to find out that the scroll is really a mirror, and he sees himself. And <laughs> he find, you know, and I'm like, that's brilliant. Mm-hmm. It's brilliant, right? The stories that last. So I don't know. I guess, am I saying you should be a hack if you're like, repeat yourself? I don't. Yeah, well, maybe not... at heart, I mean, there's only a few stories we tell you know, at heart. And I think that it's like, we need, we need to keep re-going over and over those because we never learn the lessons. <laughs> well, I mean, they're damn scary stories. Like, uh-huh. why do we die? Right. Yeah. Is love real? Mm-hmm. What is my mother? Why am what, I what, alive? <laughs> what happens when we die? What happens when we die? Isn't, I mean... People, I, I guess that's what, what dreams mean. You know, come on. These are all. That's what art's good. all about, right? Just trying to get to those. Yeah. Ponder, wrestle with them. There's no answer to them, but it is harrowing that there's three of us in this room and none of us know what's going to happen when we die. I mean, that's. But we harrowing. wouldn't mind talking about it. 
No, you wouldn't mind. I mean, we wouldn't mind. Um, I've been teaching with the prophet as a starting point for my drawing classes. Ooh. Uh, Khalil Gibran. I always reference it when we're on this podcast, but I was talking to Ben about it. He was like, well, they're truisms. Mm. They're, that, and, they, and it's one of the most, I don't know, republished books in so many, like 108 languages it's been printed. And it's like right up there with Williams, Shakespeare, and Lao Tzu. It's like the top three. Because hmm. it applies to everyone. I've never read it. I've only read a couple pages from it once, I think, just by the way. And oh, that's how less so poorly good. read I can be. Go ahead. Yeah. Look, ben and I had a nice weekend last week, and I, and I read him the one about friendship. And it was like, one of the lines I really loved was like, your friend is your needs answered. Mm. And it's mm. like such a deep concept. And it's one sentence. <laughs> And it made me cry to read to him. And then we talked about what our friendship, like we had a two hour conversation from one word. You know, what is a truism? It's an idea that's distilled and everyone can taste it and, it, and, and get some meaning from it. Hmm. It's something of substance. Um, but I was telling Marshall in another podcast, I said, oh, what is painting but describing the taste of water? Hmm. <laughs> something that everyone Everyone participates in what you don't really think about. Mm, and mm. it's not like you're going to come up with anything new. Mm. <laughs> but we all drink it. <laughs> um, That's nice. But I think we're talking about that. About this, the, the, the oh, and then at, at Pratt we had this discussion. We we're talking about gesture. And all the teachers were supposed to be putting up work of their students' stuff that, that showed gesture. Mm. Is it movement? Is it time? Is it gravity? Mm-hmm. And I, I don't really like nomenclature like that. But yeah. With them. And and everyone had their, you know, their own anecdote about what they did in the class. And then I finally went up and I was like, you know what? I, I tell my students that you can't capture gesture. Mm-hmm. We'll never actually draw it. You can't. Beautiful. You can, but you can try. <sighs> and that's the drawing. And, th- and, and in that pursuit, you can get the essence of, of what it means, mm-hmm. of what it is. Hmm. And that's a gesture. But you'll never, you'll never really pin it down. So the point is, this, is that we, we're meant to be overwhelmed by all this information, that the body is so difficult, that there's, you know, there's different things to measure. There's the movement. There's the gravity. There are all those things. There's time. There's speed. You have to do it quickly. Mm-hmm. The experimentations, all these things. And, and when you're forced in, in your desperation to, to draw this, you get an essence of something. And, and Ben said something last week that really stuck with me about how the flame kind of flickers. We were watching a campfire. He says, isn't that funny how the flame flickers and it goes from here to there? But it's the only, it's the only thing that has that property. Like water can't do that. Can't do that. And I feel like the artist is trying to, is trying to bridge those two moments where the flame is flickering from one moment to the next mm-hmm. and okay. he's going to succeed or fail depending on what the situation is he you know I'm just saying she they they're going to like some work's going to be more successful than others mm. you know but the the thing that keeps them trying to do it it keeps you looking for them I think you go oh that person's interesting maybe I didn't love that particular output maybe I didn't love that series but I like what they're, you know, I like, I like what they're investigating. I like what they're trying. I like the, 
I like the I like the the rules and the the space in which they're operating, you know. And yeah, it's hard to get. It's hard. It must be very hard for you to stay real all the time and go, God, I, how am I going to get up and do it today? You know, how am I going to nail that thing today? And and you have to be compelled to do it. I feel like you have to do it, or else you won't, because it's just too tall an order. You mean to constantly create is too tall an order? To constantly, order? like, to have to, to answer to all those criteria, like Sophia's saying, you yeah. know? Yeah, oh, a man is how many heads high, ideally, and then the proportions, and then the tone, and then, and then you can get all those things right, and it can still not be good. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, you have all these things that you have to know in order to forget, in order to do it, and and then line. you're being you know yeah and and you, and then you're being judged you people are always in your studio you know watching well i don't like that but like people sometimes they feel like i feel like they're zoo animals or something you know you're working on this thing you you you're trying to remember all the things you're taught so that you can just sort of forget them and be in the moment and do the thing mm -hmm. and then people come in and they comment on what you're doing midstream right which yeah. i think is just not a good idea right like cuz they could interrupt that stream where you're you know you're going to see it through their eyes and then you're going to see your success and maybe that's a bad idea. maybe that you shouldn't see what's doing well maybe you should you know this where when the critique happens is also important like it could be the right word at the at the at a moment that's usually that's useful for you and it could be the wrong word at the right moment you know and and mm. and it can change the work and um so i wonder about how you guys manage that kind of um, feedback or that loop of feedback all the time. Well, yeah, especially when like good is a, it's almost like that, like what Sophia was saying about the in between the flame. Like, how do you say what's a, a good drawing or not? Like, yeah, we will have a subjective opinion and they like it and they react and that's nice. They go, Oh, Marshall, God, that's so gorgeous. And you feel good, right? I think it lights their flame. Yeah. They go, that's really beautiful. I try. I, th I feel like I try. Not to listen, and this is good or bad, I don't know, I'll get your opinion. Not to listen to what anyone says about anything. I don't like know that. how you do that. That's a great facility. I, 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 when I made work, I found it so hard not to have the words just like bury into the, like that, that, that green floral goo inside me. Hmm. <laughs> know how to not register it. Um, I had a friend just had a show big show, solo show, one of her first shows. She's excited. I'm excited for her. The work is incredible. And um, the Boston Globe wrote about it. She said, you know, I, I feel a little worried about it because the review wasn't ravingly wonderful. I mean, it was, it was almost saying, you know, is this work meaningless? Uh, you know, what, what's the point of all this? And I said, you know, I said, I think that this is such a gift that, that you have an audience that can ask you a question that makes you have to reinvestigate what you're doing. Just, it's it's going to make you have to re-see what you're doing. It's good that you can't discount it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's good that she couldn't write it off. It's hard it to so write reviews, by the way. I just want to give that person some... I don't know what the, I don't know what the reviewer was. Oh, yeah. I don't know who it said. I don't know if it was well-written. But it is really... It's hard to write a cogent, well-reasoned review. Right, it's I not do something you do. You. you don't do it like oh, I wrote a review, and you know, y you spend hours on that thing. 
So somebody spent a lot of time, right. I'm just going to give them the benefit of the doubt. They spent a lot of time crafting a response, mm -hmm. which is in itself showing that the topic is worthy, whether right. or not they liked it or didn't like right. it. So I agree with you. I think it's great that they got that. Also, when did it come out? She's not getting, or this person is not getting a review. They're not getting reviewed while the work is in flux, right? They put it out into the world. They put it into an exhibition. It's crystallized it's, now. It's now in a framework. Mm -hmm. It's The lights are on. The walls are white. The the place is, is, is rented or is under somebody else's name, you know? So you're asking to be in the arena. Let the games begin. And the games began, right? So why it might be devastating to get something harsh, if you're like Marshall, you could have this, what I think is, that's why I don't think I lasted, you know, I, 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 I wilted like a, like a night flower, you know, when I was in art school. It's like, I didn't have that, I don't want to call it armor even, but that reserve mm. of, of, of something, you know, that you have to know when's the time to take it you know, how to take it. So you get a review, getting a quote, I don't even call it negative. I don't think there's such a thing as a bad review if it's a good, it's, a, it's mm -hmm. criticism, it's a critical, it should say critical and not, you know, I write reviews, okay, so I know how hard it is to write and it's harder to write a critical review because you're being critical and not going for them as a person, right? You're going for points. So that's, it's an invitation to a discussion hmm. and the work yeah, it's a gift then. Is the dis is is in the discussion, mm -hmm. and isn't that what artists want to be part of the capital C? They always say conversation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you, when you give someone an unfavorable review, do you feel bad about it? Do you feel? Do you avoid that person? No, <laughs> like, I don't know. It, <laughs> sure, you feel bad. Yeah, yeah, you feel bad, but um. Like I say, it's hard to write. Mm -hmm. And you don't really want to step into an arena knowing you're going to be, be mean. You know, you should try, if you can, to recuse yourself from something that is like, let's say, work that's touching on something that you can't really be objective about. And there's no such thing as objectivity. Okay. But that you can't really examine without a kind of trigger or reactive, you know, quality to it then you know are you are you shooting are you are you hurting somebody that's not even in the in the arena are you are you not going for something f being fair hmm. um i'm not really remembering anything negative or critical that i wrote you know right now but yeah i think you you feel kind of bad but you know you work so damn hard on it you spent so many hours writing it then when you're done it's just this thing that has its own life and you go you walk away and you're already writing the next thing you know and you don't get to do it too try not to get too bogged down about it because it seems it should make sense it should all track your your argument should track in your right. work right mm -hmm. sometimes i think things also that are universally praised like there's kind of a, a loose rule for like say a rotten tomato site or something like the good movies aren't the 99s or 98s like the good movies are in the like 85s on Rotten Tomatoes because it's not like for they're the interesting ones you know a, a 10 is generally bad and a 99 <laughs> is a little like fine 
but like all the interesting stuff in like the seventies and eighties. <laughs> I don't, I don't really go to movies or read. Like, <laughs> but would you I, say I agree with what you're? I, I could see the sense that idea. Just yeah, a, a, you know, like a compilation of various reviews, all mm. given numbers and mm-hmm. an aggregate. Yeah. The interesting stuff's gonna be a little lower than the universally praised mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you have to make somebody think, mm-hmm. right? And that person might not like what they have to think. Does the art reviewer unpack the work? Art reviewer does many different things, and it depends on the publication not to be too much of a writing teacher, but there's a thing called, you know, and I've only learned these terms recently. It's part of um, rhetoric and composition, but, you know, what's the discourse community you're writing for? What's the rhetorical community you're writing for? So if you're reviewing for a a show that's a, a, you're writing for a weekly publication and the person reading your review is thinking not only about what's good or bad, but what's worth seeing now that, you know, they might want to go see something that's controversial and difficult, Mm. right? that's an aspect or is it a you know more of a morgue you know thing where the publication comes out more way after the things down or a scholarly publication where it's you know you're talking about something historical and you're reviewing a show of you know leonardo's drapery or something you know so first of all there's like what's the situation is it impactful for the artist is the artist are, are you talking about is it more about curating is it more about a content of the work are you reviewing the curatorial um, premise as well as? Are oh you talking God. about the architecture? Maybe it's the Guggenheim and they've just redone something. I mean, every review you ever write about the Guggenheim is always about, damn that spiral, you know, and how the spiral's working or not working with the show. It's like Frank Lloyd Wright is in, rears his head into every review. You know, like some of the work looks good at a really long distance or super up close. <laughs> And some of it doesn't. And so you, you can't resist but go, well, in another room, this would have been much better. Uh, give me a rectangle, you know, or not. So this factors, you know, so you just can't say writing a review, you know, like, first of all, because you, you're writing for something. Like, just like we said earlier, you're reading for something, you know, you're writing for something. So now I've forgotten the question. So do you unpack the work? So you have different things. Do you, a lot of the time... You can't just begin with the premise that that person knows the work, right? Mm-hmm. They haven't seen the show. They may never have heard. I write about contemporary art 96% of the time, okay? So um, hopefully you're introducing the audience to the work, introducing them to the premise of the work, introducing them to the maker. The contextualizer. So you have to do a certain amount of contextualization. So you know this. There's like four kinds of art language in a review. And I taught this to you in class, okay? And I got this from Alan Klotz at Pratt, my MFA teacher at Pratt. I don't write it okay? down because I missed it in You class. remember this class. <laughs> and I made you guys do it with, like, highlighting pens. And he developed this in our, our criticism class, I think. Yeah. And I think I modified it slightly. So anyway, what I just, just talked about, like, let's say um, there's stuff that the reader has to know in order to enter the review, right? Mm-hmm. Who's at work in here and maybe a little bit of context, on them, right, that they need to know, some biographical information. So that's what I would call one of the more minor aspects of the review. So there's there's description. 
setting, you know, talking about the work, either describing the work itself so that there is some picture of the work, some, some mental picture of the work that you're not talking only in theory. How many works are in the show or what are they? Are they made out of paint? Are they made out of plaster? Are they yellow? Are they entirely cool colors? Are they larger than your head? <laughs> you know, are they smaller than a horse? You know, how many, how do they fill the space? So a certain amount of description. And I guess in a movie review, you would call this plot, you know? Mm, okay. You That's know, Fast and Furious is mm-hmm. about a fam, you know, not, 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 right? Right? Before you What's go into whether or not the franchise show? of Fast and Furious deserves to be continued, you may have to introduce it. To people so it's like me plot characters in a movie review right so in 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 this case that's description all kinds of things in in, in a show of still lives you know a lemon might be in description lemons might be in there you know or, or 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 flowers okay and then you have um analysis which is um taking information that you've just given the the reader and kind of synthesizing it in a way that's a little bit of a i guess a higher order mental thing and I can describe that in a minute, but I just want to get it. So there's description, analysis, and judgment. Judgment mm-hmm. is whether or not that work is in fact successful or not. Okay. Okay. And then also you've got to throw in this other thing, which we're talking about called context or background. So that can include biographical information, sometimes talking about the processes in there, because that might be contextual. It might be important contextually, you know, um, or you might consider process to be a little bit of description. To me, description is like naked eye stuff. What will that person be seeing? How does it appear to them? You're going to be seeing lemons. You're going to be seeing lemons. You can't. You can't. Ar- you shouldn't be able to argue too much about that because when it's descriptive. When it's descriptive, you shouldn't be able to. Uh, you know, analysis is something else. But because analysis kind of tips toes around possibly even instructing the audience yeah. how to view it, right? Yeah, and it's very helpful. So you don't want to have too much of any you don't want some some reviews depending on the context will have more dominant analysis than other event than other um publications because that reader wants to get a sense of how this work may be functioning in the context of that person's prior work or how this work is functioning in the context of its genre or of its society to place into context. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, analysis can sound like description a lot of the time because it can be done very subtly. And it can even sound like that's where you start thinking, oh, they don't like my work. That's, that's when you start, if you're reading a review of your own work, maybe in the analysis portion mm-hmm. is when possibly opinions are being they're developed. going to think that perhaps it's not right uh, Ms. Caiaphas that um, God should be such an important player mm-hmm. in um, an urban scene you know right, or like right. that, that that's the spiritual and the secular Need to be have been in your work before but now one is getting the upper hand mm-hmm. they may not say whether or not they think that's good but they may be analyzing, and the reader, that might be helpful. The reader might be like, I didn't realize that there was a spiritual or religious component to this work so much before, or that this is something that's been in play for a long time, right? So it, it, I'm, it's synthetic information. It's information that the reviewer needs to know to give it to you in a kind of in a smoother package so that you can then grease the wheels a bit more in your head yeah do you feel like when you're writing over the years you've been writing so many reviews i'm sure you've done interviews Mm -hmm. 
um, later during this analysis part, you're doing all these things. Where you're contextualizing, you're deciding if it's functioning in the context of society or their previous work, these things. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine not being in touch with your own bias and knowing almost almost like a like a like a close friend. Like your bias is a close friend, but you can't you can't always share it with everyone else because that that belongs for you. That isn't for the people that are going to read it. Do I'm going to be really Jewish and answer your ask your answer your question with a question. Why is that important? I'm I'm asking you if you notice it and what that feels like. If that makes you feel like you know yourself better, or you know what you like more. Marshall, I don't have an answer for her. Could I do a little dance or something or a little vamp? <laughs> and this is where we da 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 go to the popcorn to get the popcorn <laughs> in the lobby. I don't know how to. No, I like that you're asking me a question that makes me uncomfortable, Sophia. Do I know more about myself and my own biases? from writing a review and while having, I'm and writing possibly it? having to kind of keep it away from short the answer itself. I mean are you aware of your um proclivities while you're drawing somebody no. okay you're drawing a nude model okay are you aware of your sexual or personal or stuff you know like something that might be creeping in there while you're while you're drawing them no but if Does i had it to matter? present my parents if i had to like take my parents through a bunch of drawings of my my figure drawings i would possibly start to notice how i viewed my own drawing experience because i had to tell them how to look at it well but mom these are drawings of naked people but it, it isn't what you think it is it's it's more like this i guess i'm pointing out you bring it into the room with you but you're so damn professional as a as a, as a drafts person that your hands moving over the paper you're doing the thing you're you're drawing the model right and it becomes forms in space and it becomes things that overlap and things in front of other things and i think that you bring those things into you into the room with you but i don't think those things are at play as much. I mean, it's going to be in every every step you take, every move you make. It's going to be autographic. It's in your very line. It's in your very touch. You're saying the bias. Yeah, the bias but yeah, who you are, your your preferences, your feelings. Right. But you are like your, you know, you can tell an artist. It's like it's like listening to a Coltrane solo or something. You can you're like ba ba da ba ba da ba da. You can hear a couple of notes. You don't even have to hear the whole solo. And you know that's John Coltrane because the way he hits that note. There's like there's Coltrane in every note. There's you in every drawing, but you're not aware, and I'm not aware. Like while I'm writing the thing, because I know this is how the paragraphs. Lo I'm like a carpenter. I'm a freaking carpenter. I, I lock the paragraphs together. I I, I hone. I did later on, long time after. <laughs> after, as Stephen King says, you know, you you've had it in the drawer a while. You got to wait for it. Yeah. It's like you got to wait for it to really cool off. Mm -hmm. Then, when you don't even remember writing it so much, right? Then you can open up the drawer on the work, on your writing, and go, whoa, I'm blah, blah, blah. But I think that, that the writing's too warm still. And, like, y you've got to let it, it's like a souffle. It's kind of like, a, it's got to, okay. like, fall. Okay. And I don't think I know my own biases so much when I'm writing, because I just, I'm, 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 I'm making a cabinet. <laughs> you have to maintain a certain level of, of real, honest curiosity as someone. You have that to about. like writing more than you like what you think. Oh, 
Oh. I wonder if that applies to making work, too. I think so. Hmm. Keep going. You have to like being true and professional and um, it's an objective thing. And it's very hard to edit yourself. People teach writing, but they don't teach revising, right? Like, here's how you write. Nobody really shows you how to edit yourself. So hard. Because you've got to take that exacto knife out. Sometimes you've got to cut off your own hand, you know? Like, you mm. like that part of what you've written. You know that part is you. And it's not freaking working in the word count. And that's the word count. And you have to sacrifice something overboard, and that's going to be that part. And it just like, it hurt, you know, but you cut it off and it hurts you and you cut it off and you just go, Bop, and it's all bloody and it's in the water, you know, and your ship sails forward and the thing gets printed or whatever. And it's a well-written review. Mm. And that part of you that you felt you needed to have in it, you doesn't get satisfied. So you have to want to do that more than the emotional thing. And it's often easier to write when you don't have too much of the emotional I mean, easier. Like, writing's always hard. It's always, always, always hard process. It's not fun. I don't find it. It's, it's good. You, you lose a sense of time, and it's kind of exciting to be in a, in a, in a what do they call it, zone, you know? Mm -hmm. But it's, 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 not, it's not fun. Well, it's fascinating to me that that idea of working within restraints, making, like you were saying, you have a word count, and you have to meet that it possibly makes your work stronger, right? Because you have those parameters. Like, what was it? Brian Eno had that idea of eliminating, working within parameters to become more creative. I think it's very hard as a painter, just in your own studio, there are literally no parameters. Mm. And it's like editing or whatever. It's like really difficult. So hard. And, and, and you do a lot of soul searching and you do a lot of self torment. I know I, you know, I do that. And, and there is a lot of comfort in a way to have that iron thing, this torture device, you know, placed over you, not comfort, but it, it's, it's literally what it is. It's a parameter and mm. you have to want to submit to it more than you want to like yourself, you know, in that, in that way. And, and I don't know when I, editing is the hardest thing for me and, and and it slows me down in my writing and there are times I am so desperate you know that anybody calls me on the phone you know luck of the draw I'll be like Pablo haven't heard from you in a long time Pablo listen to this paragraph <laughs> and he'll be like oh okay you know I'm having paella at my house in the Rockaways and I'm just like listen to this one okay and it, it hurts to read it you're cringing you go and then you read him an alternate paragraph the one that leaves out some shit or whatever and you read that to him and then you just wait and you're cringing you hate the way it sounds you gotta read it because as you're reading it and you hate it you go oh I know I'm avoiding the inevitable and then you ask Pablo who just wants to talk about paella, what he thinks. And he goes, no apparent reason. I kind of like the first one, right? And, <laughs> and then you go, okay, kill that baby, this one lives. You go, okay, the first one, you know? And need that, you need sometimes that help to come in. And, and you're just like, I made so many decisions based on so many really important things. 
you know. And, you only, and sometimes you only have so many words, right? You have so many words. There's so many decisions. And it could go in a totally different direction if you choose that other way, right? But, you know, you have to kind of think you suck at a certain point. You go, oh, I suck. And this sucks. And and what people like, you know, I'm writing for a different thing. I'm writing, you know, professionally. I don't have that that torturous problem so much that you have because I ultimately have to write for an audience and that's why I think it's key that thing about when you ask me about writing your audience I just keep that you know like who what's my audience here you know who's that famous newsman who always drank you know while he wrote you know like his typewriter and he had one word over his taped over his old Remington and it said focus you know Hmm. just like focus remember that thing you know and if it makes you cringe it's probably right because you're not facing that the thing you're doing you know it's not working and you're just putting your head up your own butt and you're you know um i think the painting and drawing is much harder than what i do because it doesn't have those parameters many many reasons that you have to ask yourself so many hard questions and um the aloneness of that when you're writing a difficult review the ones that you kind of are describing oh i'm trying to drive myself crazy i'm on the brink of devastation i don't want to. it's often like that <laughs> i like i think that that is that sounds familiar that sounds like the artist's torture i know that sound <laughs> and i think that this has to do with you being invested as a as a person as a viewer not just as an as a writer thinking about an audience but you are letting yourself be changed by the work and what you say about it does absolutely affect who you are and how we're going to see it okay i think i understand your question now and i do have to say i'll take back my other answer yes i am changed because i am changed by the chemistry and i'm going to use the word alchemy which i hate so much <laughs> which painters use well remember very words word. alchemical i'm like <laughs> shut up she's fine you know but it is an out al- the alchemy of having to to put my words through the still you know and find them and then i find them and then i go oh that's what i think and that's what peter elbow the writing theorist that i use in class you know often says that we don't have meaning and then write we write into meaning we uh, write in in order oh to God, find meaning is what happens after you've written do you hear that listeners <laughs> write into meaning mm-hmm. let's Pay take a break meaning. let's take a break yeah, yeah. Hey there, it's me, Sophia. You're currently listening to the Art Grind podcast. And I'm on here just reminding you that we need your money. So go to artgrindpodcast.com, the website. Click the link. Get onto the page. You see our little logo with a G, the glowing G. You scroll all the way down past building a community past patreon and you see you can also donate to us with paypal and you see a donate button and it's yellow and you click that and you follow the prompts and it's the best day of your life and it's the best day of ours because we know that we're being supported by real people who care about what we're doing and they get something from it you know it's a relationship and also we do want to know what you think of the show Okay, so if you, let's say you didn't donate. Let's say you're like, I'm strapped for cash. How dare you ask me to pay for this incredible content? (laughs) What you can do instead is go write a review about our incredible content. 
and say something to us. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you want more of. Tell us how you feel in writing, you know, on the iTunes thing or whatever. I think you can review it. It's not that hard. You can even tell something you don't like. That's helpful, too. We love it. We'll take anything. Um, that's all. All right? We're going to get back into the Sarah Schmirler interview. Here it comes. So, Sarah, how did you get into teaching? So I come by this honestly because um, I come from a family of teachers. So uh, uh, both my parents were teachers. I grew up pretty much in a classroom chair. You know, one of those chairs with the desk attached desk, to the chair. The groove for the pencil. Groove for the pencil. <laughs> and um, I guess by way of saying I'm very comfortable in a classroom environment because that's where I had to wait. I was an only child. I'm an only child, but I have an older brother. Very confusing. My mother's son. Mm. Not my father's. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. And much older than myself. Almost 17 years. So I'm growing up alone. Two older parents. And um, both my parents were Jewish educators. And uh, came up in a, what I guess many would be considered a very religious observant household okay and um but also went to secular schools so i had at home a lot of this um religious training and i did go to religious school for one year and, and also in the afternoons but largely i was sent to regular kinds of schools you know, okay public schools um in florida in south florida yeah i was not born in south florida but my family um that's where they moved and i grew up in south florida so not surrounded by culture um, my father, somewhere around the time I was two, segued from teaching in a Jewish environment where my mother stayed. She stayed as the principal of the local synagogue's Hebrew school. Um, both excellent teachers, both. And, and, and so I'm watching good stuff, but really different styles. Hmm. And my father goes into the local community college where he really makes a name for himself. Okay. So this comes back to how I teach, okay? So... Um, Fast forward to like 1995, I guess I taught, I was a graduate assistant at Pratt and I, I did teach in Alan Klotz's classes, a graduate assistant. So I have taught some teaching experience, you know, in critical studies. But anyway, first teaching gig as professor and um, in an art history department hmm. and they hire me and um, they take me into a nearby office and we're photocopied. The book's not ready. Oh, here's the textbook we use. Great, we use a textbook? <laughs> that sounds wonderful. Our class is starting when? On Thursday. Oh, you mean two days from now? Yes, two days from now. We'll just photocopy the first chapter so you can read it before the students do <laughs> and we'll get you a book soon. Oh so I'm like, great. Huh. Read the first chapter of the book. All you have to do is be a step ahead, right? In the little, little lily pad of life. Just get across the, you know, the little pads across the river. And, um... I'm standing at the photocopy machine and the chairman is talking to somebody who walks into the room. She says, I'd like you to meet Professor Schmirler. And my head whips over my right shoulder and I look behind me and it gives me, I like my hair on my arm stands up because I thought they were talking to my dad. My dad died when I was 17. Mm. Like, not a happy story. Mm. And I thought, I just felt him. I was like, and then I looked back and I went, Professor Schmirler, that's me. That's oh me. I'm Professor Schmirler now. So I just kept that. Like I never wanted the students to call me Sarah you know, I'm like, I'm Professor Schmirler. Hmm. And how come I felt like I could start teaching on Thursday? Well, because I had watched Professor Schmirler work for years, you know, <laughs> in middle school. I was in college classes, in a community college. And so 
Um, my dad, I guess it's important to note, he was um, kind of a refugee and he had the kind of added, you know, a very highly educated guy. I mentioned him before in the podcast, I think. And um, so he came from Eastern Europe and he fled the Nazis and he got out and he was in Great Britain. So his, oh, wow. he was in medical school to be a doctor in Leipzig, Germany, when Hitler came to power. And he got out, most of his family did not, and he got out ahead of some stuff. And so his dream of being a doctor never materialized, and he made it in his world by the seat of his pants, by his own incredible brain as an educator. So, you know, eventually he comes to America. Where did he, yeah, where did he go when he fled Germany? It was in Leeds, England, I guess London at first, oh, and then University of Leeds. Okay. And liked soccer a lot, which they call football, and had a British accent. And so I grew up with that in the house, but never, he didn't want me to have his accent, had to speak like an American, speak like your mother. She had a degree in English from Hunter College, which I thought was this great temple of learning. Hunter College, wow. Tell you know, okay. So, <laughs> you know, this thing like you want to sound like an American, you don't want to have any accent. What do you teach? So he basically taught whatever to survive, you know. So he, when I was a little girl, oh my God. you know, the job switched from the synagogue. Well, my mom took the job. No problem. Good teacher can teach anything. You see where I'm going with this. This is amazing. So he taught, he could learn French, right? So he got like a certificate in French. So he taught French. Then they needed a teacher in statistics. Well, he was a math whiz. So he taught statistics. Wow. Then he became, he finally found his niche, which fused his knowledge of um, hermeneutics and texts and all kinds of texts, you know, he, ancient Greek for the Old New Testament and Hebrew for the Old Testament and going to the Shoresh, the roots of words and literature, religion. So he was like the only religion teacher there. And he just taught wisdom books, Job. So, oh, wow, that's awesome. So I'm like, teach on Thursday. I'm like, good teacher can teach anything. What's the subject? Art history. Sure, I just have my MFA. I could do this, you know. I'm doing it. What was your MFA in? Writing. Painting. Painting. Never, never got a degree in writing, and my BFA, my bachelor's, is in painting, from Vassar. So I got, I have mm. two degrees in painting, and I became her. So that's another story. So that's the story of my becoming a teacher. Is I was a teacher, you know. I'd already been around them, and so I, I kind of taught and. Um, what happens with the chapter thing? You read the chapter. What happens when you go to class that week? Does anything happen? Is, that, is there more to the story? or is In that particular situation, it was great. Um, I think I walked in and I told them that I was new. One class was really difficult and one class was not. Uh-huh. Um, one girl, young woman, I wrote, I'd had my back to her and I was writing on the board my name. My name is Professor Schmerler and she got a sour face. I turned around. What kind of name is that? She said, what does that name mean? He said, who, or something. And I said, well, clearly a schmirler is someone who schmirls. <laughs> you know, like, is, I don't know. I just jumped in. I enjoyed it. And I taught art history for, for quite some time. Um, so that's how I started. I just sort of felt like, oh, yeah, so to get back to this idea of, like, being a trickster. So you're teaching in a subject area, in a content area, right? Whatever that is. But what you're really teaching people is something else. Mm. Yeah. And it's what they need to learn. Yeah. You know, so now I... What you're you teaching know, people is what they need to learn. It's what they need to learn. Across the board. Yeah. yeah. And, and my comfort area is, is art and fine art 
and fine artists and criticism because mm. that's you know that's what I do. But I didn't start out like that, you know. And now I'm uh, I, I, I teach English composition, and it's kind of fun to say to them, you know, I've been a professional writer for 25 years, but I didn't get trained in English, you know. And in that way, you have to constantly be a student of whatever you're going to teach next, right? I imagine you're learning as you're teaching. Well, that's the thing, another thing that I, this incredible, I, I don't I don't think my parents were great parents. <laughs> they were, I did not like have a happy childhood. It was kind of pretty fraught. And I think most artists have some traumas and, you know, difficulties that they go through. Hmm. Um, but they were really deep and, and I got like in my air and water and food every day, you know, that this idea of learning is like, it's lifelong. You don't hmm. learn something and you're done. Uh-huh. Hmm. You teach because you, you always have to, and you learn because you always have to, that what you're learning doesn't get you know, that you go back in a way to the same lessons. So if you're teaching, you are always learning. And like I said, that assignment that we did in your class, I change it up, you yeah, know. Yeah. And I guess I do it as long as until it gets like worn out. Yeah. And then I do a different one, which may sound capricious, but it's not. It's like it's if it loses its effectiveness. It's part of it. Then why keep it? Yeah. You said, uh, I have some notes here from a notebook I had. I think f- at least five years, maybe it was like four years ago, in your class, you said, you were quoting something your father said, mm. that which you inherit, you must go out and acquire and make it yours. That's the um, paraphrasing of the philosopher and poet Goethe, who said that which we have acquired from our ancestors, we, that which we have inherited from our ancestors, we must acquire it in order to possess it. And isn't this kind of speaking to to this process of learning and teaching and learning and teaching, right? I inherited a certain, you know, facility or a certain, you know, vocation, right? Mm. I started out trying to be an artist, went to art school, you know, and that wasn't really, as you know, paying my bills or whatever, right? But I had lurking in the background this vocation that I didn't realize. Well, I turned writing into a vocation, Mm. so I sort of sublimated my need for art and turned it into writing but that vocation was there for me and I use it and it's a similar story to my dad you know teaching saved him from deportation or whatever you know like that's what kept him Mm. afloat in as an illegal alien or whatever somehow having this ability to do this thing so why not you know do it you must be getting something out of it it's really challenging to teach English composition to, to CUNY freshmen because they don't want to be in the room. You have to often spend a lot of time getting that person into a place where they're even receptive to learning or understanding that you have something to give them, you know, but it is a kind of excitement and a reciprocity of just knowing this is something that I'm supposed to be doing. I have to be interacting with people in this way it's something about how I learn. Mm-hmm. I'm older now. I don't want to go to school. I mean, I could, I suppose, chill out and go to school. You know, but I don't. 
it's so interesting because like look how look how the internet's changed everything look how language has changed looks like mm. people will tell me what they're saying i'm like i don't understand what you're talking about mm-hmm. what did you say what's near your what's your is that the new yo and they laugh at me <laughs> when do you say your <laughs> can i say you're like no no professor you don't say it like that you see it when you see somebody when you when you haven't seen them in a long time. Like, oh, okay. Like whatever. Like language, you've got to love it. It's, it's it's fun, you know. It's it's fun. So I like it. I guess I'm getting a bit burnt out from teaching, to be honest. But um, so yeah, it's my it's my legacy. And my brother, I think, is what taught me how to write. I told you that story. So my brother's like 16 and a half years older than I am. I'm just crazy about him. He's always lived someplace far away. We were in South Florida. And he would write me letters. Only my brother wouldn't write me like kitty letters. He wrote me like real letters. And my mom would read them to me. And then I would tell her what to say back, you know. But after a while, that's great. you know, I was like, well, mommy, I want to write. And I was little, you know, I was like, mom, I want to write these. I want to write to him. So she'd say, okay, I'll write down. And I think a lot of artists do this, you know, copying. I'll write down what you say you want to say. And then you just, so I would just form the trace, you know, write it myself. I wouldn't trace it, but I would like form her handwriting. And that these cursive shapes meant I'm playing with the neat toy you gave me. I miss you. And then, and he would always write me back. So it was this mm-hmm. car. And this went on like for my, most of my childhood and my teens. And he would send me these, and he's a great writer. He was a professional writer. And they would not be dumbed down letters. be typed on stationery from the Department of Labor where he was working. And he talked to me about things. And so I use those as teaching things now. I'm like, students don't know what letters are. Mm. You know, I hand them a letter. Like, this is a letter. And I had to write back, how old am I? And they're like, 1976. You're 12. I'm like, yeah, I'm 12. What am I going to say to my brother? you know, who's written to me. This is our, this is the way we, we speak to each other. So it forced me, correspondence was the genre that forced me to write, I think. Hmm. What did your paintings look like when you were in, in school, in Pratt? Pratt, um, oh, I'm so tortured. Um, when they started to get better, they weren't paintings, they were drawings. Okay. And color was nice, and I love color, but I think I was, it was too hard so I, I did my first painting at Pratt, and it was um, brightly colored and happy and um, vaguely cubist. I was interested in cubism and breaking up the form when I was at, at, in college. Okay. I was really changed by seeing um, cubism and the idea that there's different times and different angles and different points of view in the same plane. So I kind of figured out a shorthand for myself on how to do that. And it was turning me on. You know, I was like, wow, this is good. And I kind of like Kandinsky and bright colors. So I was doing this kind of thing. And this teacher, who won't be named, comes into my studio, first time I'm at Pratt, and he sniffs at my painting. He goes, that's nice, but it's not a painting. <laughs> so he dismisses it as qua thing. It's not even like it's not successful or here can I... I'm like, and so the first thing out of my mouth is, well, what is a painting? And he said, well, a painting is, is made out of paint. And I'm like, how do I make a painting made out of paint i later on found out that he meant you have to be a third generation abstract expressionist like the rest of us or go home Ouch. okay huh. but i didn't know that hmm. so i started moving the paint around from a place in my gut like you know i think i even made him show me like he took a palette knife and he squished some stuff 
So I wasn't going to make any lines on anything anymore. You know, like no shapes made with lines or delineations. Whereas line was like my strong suit. So I start doing this. So the next, I immediately adapt. I'm a chameleon. And he looks at it and he sniffs at it again. He sniffs and he like looks at it in class. And he turns to me smugly and he goes, so how does it feel to paint? And I'm like, I don't know, soul sucking. <laughs> you know, like, so I started wow. making these colorful, no. And then the color drained out of my work. I was like, I started making like, kind of like landscapes with planes in them and church steeples. Hmm. Because Brooklyn was the borough of churches, and I just loved that thing, and I was afraid to fly. And, and so then somebody came in my studio and looked, and they go, what's the crucifix? That is so hackneyed. I'm like, well, I'm Jewish, and I never really painted a crucifix before. It's just kind of fun for me. So there's always some comment, you know, about stuff. But the drawings were good and big and direct, and at that time, you weren't supposed to draw. You're supposed to paint. Paint shapes. You're supposed to paint. You're supposed to draw with the paint. Mm. And they didn't have a drawing major. And I couldn't get out by just like making these massive charcoal, very tonal. Um, I think that's what I was best at, like tonalities of colors of black. And and so they ended up being about prosceniums and theater sets and like performing. It was about the, the rift between theory and practice. And so I just giant proscenium sets. And they were kind of gustiny mm, and fun. That sounds good. I like and that. And printmaking was fun for me. Uh Paul Clayish acrobatic things going into proscenium sets and moving around and looking back at it, it's probably not that bad, but they were like saying you can't, you have to paint with, you draw with the paint. So I was constantly being directed towards the painting and the painting, it was like too many moving parts to me. I, I found it, to make a painting to me seemed like the hardest thing. I still think it's the hardest The thing. hardest freaking thing. Color and shape and composition and line and building mm-hmm. up the surface and patience. I didn't have a lot of patience waiting for things to dry so you could put other things on top of them. It's a lot of juggling. Oh. Well, it sounds like now, though, you're, the way you teach is the exact opposite of what that teacher, in a way, took from you. You're giving to students yeah. license. And like you said, you're a catalyst and you're like this. I learned this from him board. what not to do. What not to do. Yeah. Wow. I always try to do that. I try to think of what it was that I needed as a young artist to to grow and use that as a way to, you know, as a kind of desiderata of what I'm doing. Hmm. You know, the thing that I didn't get, what was needed? Mm-hmm. What was the ingredient that was needed for me? Uh, that's such a great approach. Like, it kind of makes me think I should be thinking that way, you know? I just wing so much. <laughs> you wing? Life. Just wing everything. Well. I don't know if there's a, yeah. I don't. teaches too. I don't think as much as you do, which I, I'm getting. Well, I'm winging convicted. it all the time. The wind's in my hair. Mm-hmm. But what do you mean you shouldn't wing it? I don't know. I, well, I, I guess I'd be an interview. Uh, I, I feel like I, it's almost as if I've never done anything before and I don't really think about I'm not very ponderous, and I just go in and do things, and then well, I. Well, what's your class? It's a practicum class, right? You're teaching us a, a subject. Yeah. Well, yeah, painting and drawing. And okay, things it's like very that. different what you're doing than what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I'm saying I'm inspired by you just in this talk because you have moments of people saying things, and you've learned a good deal from them and apply it in, and I think 
I could definitely do more of that. Well, don't you feel like you're standing on the shoulders of all these other people that came before you, but you're also been bruised and battered by these other people too. And, and the lesson that they've given you is, is survival, hmm. you know? And so you learn that's a lesson too, is don't be the dismissive, um, top down hiero, you know, autocrat. Don't, for me, it was like, don't be the autocrat quite yet. You know, give an opinion, but don't, don't redefine something for someone to the point where it's crippling. You know, mm. don't knock their knees out with an iron, you know, pipe, with a lead pipe. Mm. Try not to do that. But when you say something or it's incisive, you know, try to make it good. It's hard. Teaching so hard. You, you don't know what the effect is and they they pick on the weirdest thing you say and they run with that they take it like a football and they tuck it under their arm and they run into the end zone like no 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 not come back here not that side comment yeah come back i was really wanting to tell you this and they're like i've got to make more you know landscapes with caves in them you're like no (laughs) god it reminds me of what my brother says about being a, a dad like you never really know what's going to stick to your kids, like good or bad. Like he says that, you know, there's been things where seem very positive and they don't really remember it or things that he's like, oh, this is, you know, I just traumatized my kid. And he's like, they don't remember that. And the other, the weird things (laughs) that they do is just like, there's no real (laughs) order to what sticks. I agree with, I agree with that a hundred percent. Um, one other thing I like to do is tell people about other people that are smarter than I am or people that I admire, you know, like what I like about them and, and what they did for me Hmm. sometimes just to give them an example. So even if they've never heard of that person, this is, you know, so-and-so, and and this is what they do. And that's that analytical Hmm. kind of language I'm talking about. Frame it for them so that they can get that, you know, lesson who who do you admire? I think my first hero was Leonardo da Vinci. Hmm. When I was a little girl, um, I was left-handed. He was left-handed. Hmm. Um, I always thought he was an Aquarius, but he's not. He's actually an Aries. But misconception. <laughs> <laughs> Good enough. Um, I liked um, science more, like bodies and analyzing things a lot. You know, I That's had science. Leonardo. And that's all Leonardo. And so um, muscles and bones and flesh and stuff. And, and I would draw. I was a really natural drafts kid, you know. I, the appearance of things, I would just want them. So when I saw this PBS special they had, stayed up late to watch. I would fall asleep in front of the TV. It was up late. And I would watch. And Eddie's dissected cadavers, you know, late at night under threat of imprisonment or who knew what. And that he, you know, wanted to get underneath things. That it, it was his curiosity that he was like, it's not enough to be good at something, you know, and mm-hmm. please the Pope or whatever. You've got to go deeper. And um, so Leonardo da Vinci and Lewis Carroll, um, Alice in Wonderland, also mm-hmm. big influences on my <laughs> childish psyche. Um, and I've come to realize that I'm interested in the difference between the outsides of things and the insides of things, the contours and the the centers and so as as an artist you're you talk a lot about perception and you rely on you know you 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 know about 
how light behaves on the surfaces of some or color or local color and how it's changing. You know so much. And so you, you know about a thing from observing it from the outside. And so, but you also might need to know about muscles or, you know, mm. organs and things on the inside. So, and when you, you could like look at someone's eyes and tell if they're like sick, you know, by the color of their skin, by yeah. the or you can never see them at all and look at a blood test and be like, wow, your white count is up too high. You have an infection or know about the system. So these systems are always operating mm-hmm. and that there's this inner system that's like a mystery. And then there's this outer thing that's also something you learn, the mysteries of learning how to read those signs too. And that they both, they, you can't have them at the same time, but studying one will always tell you about the other. Mm-hmm. Studying the other will always tell you about the one. That's so great. And it's just what you said before about reading and... Uh, yeah. Writing is visible and reading is invisible. Hmm. What's the difference between writing, reading... And arithmetic? And painting. I've been wanting to ask you this for 20 minutes, and I've been waiting for the moment. Is there a difference? Um, I mean, I'll have to think about it. Painting, could we say visual art, like drawing and painting? Could we say yeah, yeah. drawing? Okay. Because I think it'll be easier to say drawing. Yeah, because you, you feel I like can you're understand. a draftsman. Okay. Yeah. Um, drawing's the exterior of the thing, right? Marking it on the picture plane it's an illusion right it's a stand-in for a thing that's not real and writing is also marks on a picture plane on a plane on a surface that are symbols or surrogates for states however you want to view words i've thought a lot about the philosophy of language you know language functions it's one of my geeky things in college that i did um this study like symbolic logic a little bit and you know all that stuff. So, so let's just say that there's shapes, okay, and they're on the page, mm-hmm. and so the shapes in a certain society come to mean different things and in different ways. <laughs> so you're they're also an illusion because you can't ever find the right word for the right thing, right? Mm-hmm. The word is is a stand-in, you know, a category. It's mm-hmm. a it's a it's a stand, and I, I'm going to make a lot of right a lot of philosophers here really angry with me. But Sophia's a name, right? Mm-hmm. I know other women named Sophia. Are they you? No, but the word is written the same, and it's on the page the same, right? Mm-hmm. And it is a hook. I think I'm quoting some philosopher named Carnap here. Like that, a proper noun is like it's more like a hook on which you hang the coat of what all that person is. Right. So it's that thing that you use as a marker to put, you know, and my experience with you is different a than thought. Marshall's. Yeah. You know, experience. So when he sees that word, it's a different marker for you, right? Mm. His experience is with you. But that's what it is, right? And by itself, it may not be more than a word and it actually means wisdom in Greek. So, yeah, yeah. right? Or that's which right. is really cool too. So it has a meaning on its own. So it's similar to drawing in that way, in that it isn't the thing, you know, the, the model you just drew is not that model, but it is a fiction that tells a story of that encounter with the model in that atmosphere, with that light, at that season, you know, and it tells that story. Now, how is that different than, um, what did you say, writing? 
drawing and reading and reading okay so reading does the viewer read the drawing yes okay so the reading of the drawing may not be all that it has to say in its entirety because the drawing isn't a performance like a m movie or a song right it doesn't have a beginning and an ending in mm. a time frame it's timeless in all things mm. the drawing comes to you lightning fast all at once right and so how you enter it is your reading of it and it's it's not something that you even have that oh you know the new world symphony now it's over you know that's over like it's done and now i can talk about it. yeah you could talk while you're in front of the drawing right you know you could eat while you're in front of the drawing so the reading of it is like this thing that i think happens not only in the moment but over repeated viewings and that's something happening inside the 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 viewer you digest the reading in a linearly more linearly, more linearly in a more linear fashion and then you must come to it again but still the words are on the page you know but it should have a narrative i mean like sentences have unless they're absolute concrete poetry you know whatever dada or some visual graphic poetry they have a beginning and a middle and an end you know and paragraphs have a structure paragraphs have a main point and then supporting details and all that kind of stuff a thesis is in each paragraph even if the paragraph is my mother is a fish you know which is a chapter in faulkner whatever so like it, it still flows in that way it's a little bit more like a performative thing i think than a drawing hmm. i think a drawing or a painting is far more singular and has less in common you know with those things except for the fact that it has a substrate and it's invisible the person's reading is invisible it's invisible that's the same but there are there also... and the making goes into the drawing right and is that invisible or is that subsumed because there's a lot of things that happened over that time that aren't visible but they are they they coalesce and coagulate in there but you know what i mean just think saying that during the making of the drawing is a whole symphony that may have happened Forms Layers. of thinking that, that invite the past, present, and future nice. in at different rates. Mm, past, yeah, thinking that invites the past, present, and future in at different rates. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. Maybe it's all like 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 the ancient, um, the in you know the East Indian philosophy says of you know like the universe is made up of the same molecules, you know, but it's just some are oscillating more quickly and some more slowly and they're just chopped up into different elusive realities, you know? Oh Red yeah. is vibrating fast and blue is vibrating more slowly or whatever it is and that's what makes it. Not that these things are different, but that their 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 speeds are different. Hmm. You know? Hmm. That they're made oh up of similar stuff. That's so great. Like, my mind is, like, really thinking about all these intangibles. Like, we earlier said, you said, Sarah, you can't pick the right word for the right thing. And then Sophia was saying, gesture, why did you say you'll it's never... It's the attempt. Mm. The attempt of these things. Is that is that some definition for art, just the attempt at at all these intangibles well you is it okay is it you know if, if a tree falls in a forest does it make a sound is the art the art when it's in the dark and it's not being read or viewed mm -hmm. 
Okay. Right. So it somehow ignited this idea that Sophia said so so beautifully about you know her colleagues saying I'm this is a show about gesture and gesture in this way and gesture and that gestural and she's like playing this thing that I often do which is like I can't paint your gesture the gesture's the thing that happens after right and then they have to kind of go hmm right so <laughs> what. <laughs> Because they want to label, you know, a mark made, and I'm, I'm, nobody can see it, but like I'm moving my arm right now from the shoulder up. You know, that thing that we think of as gesture or a swiping of the elbow as mm. being gestural. That's that frozen gesture in time or that memory or that thing that actually happened that the artist is, it's being created in the mind of the viewer, sorry, right? And so if it happens on the paper, it's that other stuff that her colleagues are saying. But if it's happening, if it's if it's exhibited in the mind, if it's exhibited, and I think, by the way, I just want to give a shout out here to curatorial thing as an art. I mean, I I've long had to write, you know, over the last twenty years or so, curatorship is now like another art is considered more of an art form that you have to think about. Absolutely. It's not just that Sophia's student made the thing, right? With the guy twisting his body and looking over his shoulder, it's not just that. It's where it was hung and who hung it and why. Mm. And that, the fact that it was seen by his peers, by his critics, by whoever, when. And that's making the reading. Mm -hmm. That's enlivening the whole, you know, thing. So I don't know that it exists on paper, you know, without me seeing it. Mm -hmm. You know, the touch was there. People talk a lot about touch in painting and drawing, like the artist's hand and yeah, art, uh, you know, you say, yeah. yeah, and like, I'm not supposed to talk about conceptual art or, or we are or we aren't. I think that there's really, I don't like drawing distinctions between conceptual art and art with hand in it so much, you know, that there's this spark of, of intentionality that's happening, you know, in the work, hmm. that the mind is touched by the work or the, you know. So like that, is that something that you should necessarily isolate and say, yes, this is made with a touch, like I'm looking, I'm pointing at a drawing that's on Sophia's wall, you know, of a, of a, of a head and it's charcoal because her hand, you know, touched that. Yeah, I keep drawing Christina and Ben every night. I draw, I try to draw them again. It's great. And you said that, you said, it's Ben, yeah. right? Didn't you just say that? Yeah. It's Ben. It's Ben. Okay, I have to tell you what an acupuncturist told me, this guy who, who cured me. One of the few, like every now and then a doctor can cure me. This is a long time ago. I used to have allergies to like dairy. I couldn't eat dairy. It would upset my, it was just, I would get sick. I would get congested, right? So I went through these long acupuncture series of whatever visits, like over a summer or something. So I'm lying there on the table, stuff sticking out of my nose, my face, you know, pins are everywhere. And so I'm not going anywhere, you know. He was a really interesting character. And I think he had these stack of magazines was in the room. One of them, I think, must have been a National Geographic or something. And I was saying something like trying to move my mouth. I said, so how does this, what's with my allergy? How does my allergy work? He said, well, your body is tricking you into thinking that this thing is a, this allergen, you know, is a, is a how did he say it? Like an en- enemy that- and that you have to fight it, you know, and we're going to, we're rewiring you so that you could probably hate this discussion, right? So that you don't see it as a threat. So you don't see you know, pollen is a threat to your being and, you know, explode. You don't have, so that's what it is. And I was like, what do you mean? So he immediately turns around, like he said, that's a picture. He said, that's Ben, you said, of that flat thing. And he grabs, and he must have grabbed National Geographic and he goes, what's this? And he shows it to me, he turns. And it was like this nasty, like, great white shark, like, ha, ah. And I go, that's a shark. He goes, no, it's a photograph of a shark. 
that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> like that. He goes, that's what your body thinks is a shark. You know, like that. Wow. So you're like, oh, that's Ben. I'm like, no, that's not Ben. <laughs> you recognize Ben in there now. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's Ben. Yeah, but it's not Ben. It's like, what is what is but it's Ben? Bad. But it's yeah. Ben. <laughs> hey, Ben. <laughs> it is Ben, and it has this quality that actually I see Sophia. I mean, I feel hard to kind of, yeah. I see a lot of Sophia's eyes in that. Yeah. I see like a lot of, I see him as like a Greek, like like no, uh, an apostle, eye. you know, or something. I yeah. see yeah. Ben in his Sophianess. That word, uh, quiddity, like the Ben-ness of Ben in that drawing, like is on a scale. How much? How much I- Ben so is it? And when does it stop being Ben? <laughs> when, <laughs> when is it? It's such a, like a ponderous thing. But there's a real utility to these images. Like it's like they they mean something, right? Just a, a, a drawing like that. It meant an experience that you guys shared for sure. It means something to me looking at it. And I have a very basic recognize, you know, like I recognize Ben. That means something to me. And I I think there's some utility to that, right? There's a reason to do this. Well, I think that was some of the constraint that you were talking about before is that she wanted it to be Ben and she didn't want to go too far off from that. And so she got the, she made that mouth. Yeah. She made the mouth so that it was Ben's more. And, and she may have given him an expression that was, she may have overdone, you know, some expression to be, but like, that's in a content, you know, she had to get something about his eyebrows or the set of his eyes. And it's Ben maybe in a few years from now or Ben when he's tired, you know, Ben is an uh-huh. older man. But she was forced to confront the fact that that's what Ben looks like. So she'd better go on with that and yeah. not with what she wanted to do or what she, you know, had to do. And, and Sophie, you said that. It was a negotiation. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> but you were talking, asking Sarah about writing and how writing might shape one. Did drawing Ben shape you in any way? The, just that specific experience? That's broad terms. We're, we're looking at a thing, but yeah, sure. Does it shape me? Yeah. 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 How so? I think it reinforces who I thought I was in certain ways. And then it also tells me who I'm not. <laughs> Does that make any sense? <laughs> I felt like I understood, but I didn't know how I understood. It reinforces who you thought you were. I felt like I, I don't know why I understood that. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> I don't know why I did <laughs> Maybe it's we share a mystic. Yeah, <laughs> we both come from very religious families, just different religions. <laughs> it reinforces who I thought I was, who I think I am. Is that good? I know what you yeah. mean. Yes, almost like when you're arguing really hard with someone. Maybe not even an argument. Let's say you're you're having a conversation that's getting pretty heavy. They disagree with you. At the end of that, whether or not it's not about who won, right? Really, at the end of that you feel more anchored to who you are because you had to fight for it. Hmm. Does that make any sense? That's mm-hmm. the overwhelming feeling I have at the end of an argument with somebody. I had a, you I had a fight. You who you are. Yeah, and then I feel grounded to that. So yeah, in the drawing, I think a drawing, especially of another person, which is a, about a relationship, which is another layer, I'm in relationship with this person. 
um, it's a it's the same kind of thing. There's there's a there's a battle going on there, and I have to I I have to be vigilant about it. Hmm. Um, hmm. That is exciting because a lot of that's throughout the history of art. People have chosen subjects that have meaning, you know, relationship for them, you know, and that's come down to us. They're long dead, you know. Um, the mistress of, oh God, you know, like some guy and he's painting his wife and he's painting his mistress, you know. <laughs> and at the time, that must have been so weird. And now they're all dust, you know. But that feeling of, you know, her putting on her stockings, you know, or sitting in the bathtub or whatever they are doing. You, I don't know if you know what I'm, 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 I'm getting at. And it's just tinged with this guy is in these domestic interiors, you know, looking at these women and he's thinking about stuff, you know, but he's, he's also intrigued by how they look when they're taking a bath, you know, or that kind of, you know what I mean? That kind of genre of like work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's history, like certain kinds of Western art anyway, it's just full of that. Mm hmm. Full of that stuff. And like, it's so interesting to have these relationship paintings that for us are these iconic, you know, seen on the veranda, you know, painting. And it might just be this fraught thing, like the way you feel with your mother-in-law at Christmas or something, you know, you might go, oh, ah. and now we have, you know, photographs and stuff like that. Okay, everybody. And, <laughs> but that's like, that's where, you know, my wife was on the veranda and my mistress was coming in from the side carrying those grapefruits and she was wearing a floral dress and my wife had this, you know, Marceau wave in her hair and I'm in the, just can see the lake behind them. You know, they're just like, wow, what a composition, you know? Like, I feel like I have this thing, like I think of in class, I call it people tech, people texture, like art architecture and people i feel like people are the architecture or the room like the 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 magnetic force of those people in the room you know mm. totally changes up and makes this architecture that's like this invisible architecture in the room and so you know no class or no group or whatever is the same because it depends who's there and oh yeah who's there and yeah. when they're there and if how much they're willing there. to talk yeah you know and 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 you could say well you you have this conversation. Yeah, but Ben wasn't there that day. You know, and Ben could be like the apps, <laughs> you know, yeah. or whatever. And somebody else is like the thing. So it's like this, I think of people like people texture. Yeah. That's true. I think about that a lot too. The argument Energies. for class is like people are like, well, you could watch a YouTube video and you could practice. And oh all that's God. so true. No. But you can't capture energy of people in a room. I'll and say that in 10 years, probably people will think like, oh, those... Those snail mail eating fogies. <laughs> that's it. Well, that's it's all true. right. You know, of course we can face time in 3D. But there is an accelerated path to learning being in rooms of people and having to compete a little bit or whatever it is. Exchange ideas, beehive. It just moves quick. And you always know that there's that woman in the class who annoys the hell out of you because <laughs> she always gets upset about the same thing in the reading. You know, she has the same beef. And she has to tell that beef, you know, or the guy, you know, there's always something and it's uh -huh. annoying. You feel like, oh, this is so distracting to my read, to my class. I don't want to be in the class with this person. But 
it's funny, like years later after college, like I, that's what I remember. Like I wonder if I really remember what the syllabus said I was supposed to learn, but I'm like, oh, that woman with the bracelets. And when she raised her hand, they'd all go clatter, 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 clatter <laughs> down her arm, you know, <laughs> in philosophy, like three or whatever. <laughs> and it would always be some argument like, here we go. And I would like roll my eyes. Now, I don't remember what we were studying. But I remember her raising her hand, you know, and, 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 and this, or like my friend having big eyes around, and if I said something, he'd just go, you know, he just opened his eyes really wide. That's kind of like, nod, yeah, you know, this, this dynamic of the classroom. I love it. And people. Something I sent to you today in a text message, I told Marshall, actually, I was talking with him, and we said that it was very, like, like you need to use this as well for painting, um, but it's it was written in a in my Orthodox Bible in the bottom little notes. I didn't write it. It was there. It was printed there. Understanding, perception, discernment are three aspects of the same thing. Let me try again. Understanding, perception, and discernment are three aspects of the same thing. They are the crown of virtue. Okay. First of all, never text me. Because I find it so annoying a medium. It has no affect, and I don't know what you're talking about. Okay? So you're like, these are the crown virtues. And I thought, of what? <laughs> Didn't I and tell you I said I just read this? You said, no, you said, these, what do you think of perception, understanding, oh, yeah. and what did you say? <laughs> Discernment. Discernment. Uh, did you read my previous email? Did you see my email? So I thought, oh, damn, there's an email I haven't read. It's got all this deep stuff in it. Oh and she wants God. me, she's changed the stream of the entire show. And she wants me to do like, so sorry. I had no understanding what you meant. And then I realized, oh, this is probably some this is unrelated. This was totally just spiritual text. thing that you were doing. So I didn't actually, I didn't know. So I thought you were talking about like some fine art thing. So then I went, hmm, after my initial annoyance, because whenever anybody texts me something... I hate out, getting texts. Out of, out of context. Sorry. And I get annoyed. And then I sort of went, oh, and I got over myself. I was like, oh, it's Chachma, Bina, and Dot. Oh, no, wait, it's Chesed, Gevura, Tiferet. And then I went, oh, it's, you know, it's, it's uh, mystical stuff. It's like the Christian version of, of, of Kabbalah. You know, and then I texted you back that pompous thing, and I was like, "Let me just look this up for her." Bam, right back was at you. Was it pompous? I, I thought it was so interesting. <laughs> Bam, right back at you. I'm like, right back at you. I'm like, well, I was like, thank you. What so it is? Much. And she's like, thank you so much. <laughs> Whereas I was trying to volley it over the net, going, I hit it down over the net. I was like, there you go. And 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 I just thought my initial response is, I don't know how to respond. And then I thought, oh yeah, this is stuff I studied. Yeah. And it's it's classic, and I don't know why that relates to painting. Because you have to. I was talking to Ben about this. I said, "How do you measure the impact of the image while you're making it?" We said, "Well, that's a philosophical question." Hmm. And then it came down. At thirty minutes later, we still hadn't gotten to the question because it's impossible to answer that. Mm -hmm. Well, because do you use language? Do you use emotion? How do you think? Do you think with words while you're painting? No, you, maybe you don't. Is it intuition? That's what somebody else said. It's intuition. You can't explain that. That's like trying to say you can draw a gesture. You can't find words. So then I said, well, what about this? Understanding, perception, discernment. These are part of that process of measuring the impact of the image while it's being made. I think that's just some you, Christian stuff you got. You have, to, you have to. You can't always just be painting. You have to also be the audience. When you step back, how do you know what to do yet next? Right? Where in the painting are you? 
you're in midstream. You're 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 laying down grisaille. You're 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 putting on the final touches. What do you mean when you're in the middle of a painting? Perception, discernment, and understanding. Yeah, understand what needs to be done. Understand what you have done. Accept what you have done is what it is. Perceive. I think it needs to be this. I feel that this is telling me that. Discernment. How do I know where to go next? Hmm. Um. But this all has to be done with a strong intention. The intention has to be clear in order for any of those other words to have any purpose, right? Mm-hmm. Well, it's easier <laughs> if you have a strong intention, right? I don't know. Sure, I'm you go in with a strong guys. intention. Talk about this. I don't know. I didn't feel that those things... I have to think... Like anything, Sophia, anything that's worth thinking about isn't going to be responded to well with an isn't going to be responded to immediately and that's the the crisis of the medium you know like marshall McLuhan, the medium is the message you know you're on a podcast you're asking good questions now podcast <laughs> listeners i don't think want to listen to silence for a good 20 minutes while i give that the thought it deserves you know I don't want, first of all, I think that this is meaningful for you. The, a, good, a good deep question like that requires time to, to mull, you know? And the fact that I re, resent, I don't know, like I had like a negative, whatever, knee-jerk reaction to your text tells me, because I know I'm, I'm a stubborn, you know, person, that I probably have a lot to learn from it. Because I happen to, I know about this, I know it's about myself. I tend to react negatively or reactively to push away something that is in fact very helpful to me. Hmm. It's a, not a quality of which I'm, I'm proud of, fond of in myself. Um, I have a real rubber-like reactive thing. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid to fly. And when I have to fly, you know, the beautiful trip, I'll walk up to the gate and I will turn around. I will walk one, two, three, four gates farther. I will walk so far until I stretch and then it's like almost like I go, oh, God, doing, and I go back. I have to walk away from something in order to to do it. Uh-huh. I'm just so backwards. Mm. That's why Alice in Wonderland is such an important book for me. I feel like everything's that's mirror true. backwards. So I felt that you texted me. It's a short day. It was just like a few hours ago today. I, I, I didn't let it sink in. I gave you a sophist to me answer, whereas I just gave you deep stuff for you to read so you could understand the context I have. Yeah, yeah. But I, I, I gave it to you the way I might give, you know, a snarling tiger something to eat right away so it gives me time to get out of the cage because I was like, <laughs> she's got her thing. Okay, I'm going to tell her that there's a correlate in my religious experience. So I'm right here with you, sister, okay? Yeah. But I'm not able to process it and I think that there should be time. Time's a huge element that, that you know, you don't know what you think about something. And you don't know an answer, and you don't know what it means, um, and I and I'd like to know, and so it's probably worth thinking about um, how. You know, you can know the impact of what you're doing while you're doing it, and while you're in it. Um, mm. I don't do. think I have the meditative. Um, I may be much older than than you guys, but I am incredibly young, an impatient person. I just noticed that people tell me this all, all the time. As the older I get, they're like, you're a very young soul. And I realize that now. I was a very serious child. I was a really serious kid, just smart and intense, you know? And as I've gotten older, I'm like, I, it's because I'm so naive and like I don't know stuff that I, I, I kind of 
it makes me nervous. I have to kind of gather my knowledge. I have to gather myself so I can come out and be Harold Hill for the students and come out and be the performer. Mm-hmm. Because I am so naive and I go, I, I don't understand. I just don't, on a basic level, don't understand what it is that is the, the, you know, the thing at hand, you know, the question at hand. And so I wonder sometimes, like, one thing I'm striving to do now is like, okay, my vocabulary is good. Am I hiding behind it? Mm. Am I finding the right word in my writing? And and people will say, that's right, you said that. They'll say, yeah, it was so, you said that so well. You know, they'll be like, bam, how'd you do that? Or it makes them happy, right? But is it making me happy? Mm-hmm. I have the right word. I found the right word for that. A good, good word. I uh, totally agree. And and I'm hiding behind my articulation because I don't know how to be present for feeling it, maybe, or I may not be um, ready yet. So vocabulary is something I think I I developed early on. It's like it might have been a coping mechanism, even. Hmm. 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 Yeah, I think that's it's so easy to hide behind virtuosity and just sort of like use it as a buffer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Get people off you. Mm-hmm. It's almost like it's almost like being playing defense in your life rather than offense. Just like defending error and mistakes. And what I might want to say is, I want to um, hold you right now. You know. That might be what you want to say to that mm-hmm. person, or um, what you just said makes me feel vulnerable. Or I mean, I mean, I'm saying some sort of pat, you know, new agey kinds of things. Um, but instead, I find I can reframe it for people. I can say what it is, you know, and and be Mercury, the god that runs between all the other gods, and help them so much, you know, and heal them. But I'm not healing myself. Mm. My own needs may be absolutely unmet and unacknowledged by me because I needn't speak to myself at all if I'm so articulate. Hmm. And it is fun, by the way. It seems like you know exactly what you know. It's so much fun to be like, it's like playing Twister all the time. Right foot yellow, left foot green. I'm going to lean back and do tripod purple. You know, and all the time you're just like, but I'm just playing freaking Twister. You know, I'm not, am I comfortable? So you like it's, I, I did that at a little party. Like somebody was talking about Netflix shows they watched. Young woman, I met, and and she was like, "You watch The Crown?" I was like, "Oh yeah, I, I hate TV, right?" But I'm like, what? And I said, "What does that make us have in common?" Let's see. If I put The Crown over here, you know, and I leaned on the counter, and I was like, "And okay, and now I'm gonna put Stranger Things over here," and she's like nodding her head furiously, "Yes, yes, yes." And then I'm like taking my leg out, and I'm like, "And back here's Marvelous Mrs. Maisel." Oh my God, I want to try about what, what shape do I make to you? You're like, what am I to you? you know? Oh my what, God. What formula am I? <laughs> goofball i'm standing there like a, look like a human jack you know like you know and what i want to say is i miss, i miss my son right now i'm at this party because you know he's at college and wish i could talk to him right now and uh, and i watch tv you know mm. which is okay but probably because it makes me think about you know my life and how i used to play D and you know, it makes me think about the queen aging. I'm the aging queen. You know, you can't say that to the people in the room, you know. So you got to, like, have these conversations. Con- conversate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe oh. you can talk about it. But it's like, I just, like, it seems like so much of talking, and I'm doing it right now. 
No, I'm... it's like it's just it's, it's a high it's an obfusc it can be an obfuscation. So that's a lesson to people who are listening. You know, if we want to sign off, it's like yeah, you want to be articulate and you want to use the best word possible, and you want to always use the least complicated word to say the best thing. If you can say it with with simpler, better to say it simply than more complicated. Yeah, better to be honest and direct, and simple is good. Simple mm -hmm. is true. Good writing is simple, and, and you want to do that. But you also want to know that what you do is is more meaningful than anything that you can be saying about it, and that's mm. how come you'll find that's how you'll find the right words to say because you'll realize that the words themselves are not so golden that you have to be you know attached to them. Right. Mm. They're just and a get vehicle. So worried. They're a vehicle. So what you do is always is way more important. How you feel and what decisions you're making in the bends, making in the drawings, far more important than any conclusion you know, that you, that you come up with. Hopefully the conclusion mm -hmm. is like the gesture that you said in your, the drawing that you said, it's, I don't know how you said it, but it's the, it's what you're trying to convey. It's not the thing you do. You're the, trying the, to convey the gesture, not gesturally do it. It's in the attempt. It's of, the attempt. Drawing the drawing is the sum total of a bunch of attempts and the beauty was in the attempt and what it could mean to you. Was the attempt in doing the it? The attempt. Mm -hmm. So, but it's the all, it's all the invisible. Mm -hmm. Is is its meaning? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if you for a minute honor that, you know, and say, is it valid that I, you know, love people enough to want to talk to them all the time, and and hear what they have to say, and is that teaching? Is that okay? Mm. Like, mm. I love hearing and wanting. To, I want to talk to them. Yeah. And, and I want them to talk to me and share with them. So that's the invisible thing. I don't know what it'll be like tomorrow morning, you know, when I start and do it at 8.30. But... <laughs> <laughs> hey, Sarah, thank you so much. Thank you. For coming in and talking with great. us. Did we want to look at some of those? Thank though? you. Oh, yeah. Let's, let's just do a... a you want to start like with Dr. Thomas Ruth Kincaid? Westheimer, like you, like the sex thing. This is very good drawing. <laughs> <laughs> no, you should be doing more. <laughs> oh, oh, I can't I even picked see a it. random. Uh, uh, a, I picked a selection. Listeners, of, they're showing me a, don't, a, a screen. We were going to do small reproduction. We were going to do a projection. It. Oh, I can't see it. But we couldn't get it to work. It's not even a painting. It's a it's a it's a reproduction of a painting in in an online. That's like, right. <laughs> Showing me an online. So what am I supposed to do with this now? Yeah, just Marshall, give, this give, is your game. You tell her. Well, because I, I first came in contact with you, and and you impressed me immensely at at critiques, and I was like, that is a super smart person. And so we just want you to critique a few, a random sampling of artists that are semi well known, I guess. Oh yeah, I've seen game shows. How many? More. How many? You want to do a what? A minute? Come on, oh. just go along. <laughs> First of all, there's an indicator pointer in the middle of I'm this, and it's minute. not even a picture. It's an approximation. It's like the shark. Let's it's do a minute shark. thirty. Okay. What am I wanting to do now? 
You just critique it like you like you like you do in the. I don't. I the, can't do it. I do it in the critique because there's so many variables I do in the crits. People don't even know what the crits are. The crits just are about the student. Words. No, you just want me to like slam dunk it into the thing. This is like the all star game. Oh, it has no meaning. On. There's no skin in this game. It's the all star games. Nobody cares about the all star games. They're just like right. soft pedaling. Oh, I, I didn't really the tackle you. This is the I home run derby. It was Can always the best the part. We'll no. tell them at the end. I like it that it's all completely hidden. This is like asking you know, Steph Curry to shoot some baskets in a game that has no... Okay, they can't see okay, it. Okay, so tell me what you want me to do. And tell we, me what I, I, well, judge it. You were talking about writing. So judge it. Use your, use your, you know, say... You could even be like, I hate this. I okay, this, this sucks. Can this we look at another one? <laughs> No. All right, let's do it. Can we look at another one? We're starting. No, I really suck. I haven't started yet. (laughs) You're odd. This really sucks. This is really sucky, and you know it, and I know it, and we all know it. But give the plot of it. What is it? (laughs) Um, Tolkien in a greeting card. (laughs) Somebody wanted. We're in the Shire. Somebody, not even the Shire. It's like the Shire and Shelter Porn magazine mixed up. And um, one of those how to paint books, one of those how to paint things, I guess. And it's really nice. I mean, it's sort of amatrocious. I can't say this on the on the air. I just don't know. I, I mean, the whites are popping, and the lights are popping, and the different the lights in the windows are popping out. Do you have any stream. emotional response to this? Disgust. <laughs> the depth is the same as the front. <laughs> There really isn't any atmospheric perspective except tropes of atmospheric perspective. There's a sort of strange paint box foliage going on. Strange paint box. Like, I went to the Sherwin-Williams store recently, and it was more interesting than this. I don't know. It's really much more. It's kitsch, okay? It's kitsch, and it's well-done kitsch. It's really nicely well-done kitsch. It's good kitsch. Good catch. It's good catch, okay? And I don't like this game. Give me something else. I don't like this game, okay, and I feel like it's No, you, you are you're so, fun. You're yeah. so good at this, I can't I even know. believe it. Uh, okay, I'm let's... Wait, hold on. i got to set the timer. Wait, wait, wait. What am I supposed to do with this? No. Same thing. Same just thing. talk about yeah, it? Talk. Yeah. Okay, the droopy bunny ears in the foreground are really nice. They're counteracting with the limp breast. The limp bunny ears are now stand-ins for the woman's breast with a baby at her breast and sort of sucking at the breast. So I'm getting this kind of kind of ponderous thing. Um, I'm seeing a mixture of furniture as social comment and kind of a migraine ad, like an ad for Excedrin, but also an ad for insurance, but also a kind of... <laughs> public service announcement you know those public service announcements you don't really know what they're advertising I think people are too distraught about this furniture store and the word four cloths four cloths in the back telling me that there is foreclosure is really so helpful just so helpful and again there's neither foreground nor background in it so I mean I guess I've never seen furniture um, blankets moving blankets rendered so lovingly as this and things bound strings being bound i mean there are some nice linear things happening elbows going into heads elbows going into elbows crisscrossing half moons i feel like the limbs are a symphony it's a symphony of limbs and they're kind of wonderful actually and nice u shapes nice compositional shapes are happening um twistings you know kind of riffing off renaissance tropes 
upturned up face. Do you feel anything? Upturned face on the right, downturned face on the left. Do I feel anything from it? Yeah. I don't want to own this, and I'd rather not look at it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Say, wow. I, by the way, what? This is why I was so impressed with you. you I don't think you should be impressed with me. I'm a mean, terrible person. People. The way know. you do this is unbelievable. I don't. What this is? Is this fun for you? We should just be. This is. This is not only fun. Really high. This, this is very educational. Okay, this is fuzzy. Either I can't. This isn't fair. You know why? Because I can't tell whether the reproduction, whether it's the. It's the, basically like that. The, I would say. You, no, no. Zoom out because I have to see where the edges are. I can't see if, if it's. I want to see where the edges of the picture much go. Say that there. Okay. So I'll look at like, it smaller then. Like that. It is like that. So it's not in better resolution. The, the fuzzy, maybe, maybe it's better. It's would got it a Turner like fuzz fuzz to it. It's kind of viewed through Vaseline a little bit. <laughs> That's what it is. Okay. So it's coming out of our historical. It's coming out of historical Greek, you know. Death of Soph- you know, Socrates, you know, all those kinds of history painting things. Um, the man's upturned palm in the foreground, almost cupping the the gallows. Perhaps it's gallows in the back. You know that line and the the, the spirit or the the bird coming out of his head in the distance, or is it a flying savior, or is it Icarus? I don't know. In the back, coming sprouting from his head. So there's all kinds of points and moments. So it's all kinds of really interesting, thought-provoking things. Why is he the arbiter? Is he the, going to be the victim of this? Is he preferring this this torture or this? And something's happening. There's always this crazy guy looking at the viewer at the side, like, I'm not really in this. Do I deserve to be here? Is this my selfie? <laughs> you know, and they, Giotto did that too. You know I mean? All kinds of guys in the past did it. So I'm not sure I'm loving the palette. Do you like the way it's painted? No. I mean, this is obviously much better than the other stuff. <laughs> so much better. But... Um, the queasy neoclassicism mixed with the kind of squeegee Turner touch on the top or, you know, overall fuzziness isn't making me happy. But I do want to know the story. I, I would like to know the title. I feel like the title is very much a part of this piece and you're not telling it to me. To go to jail for thinking about tax evasion? No, that's the title. That's the that's the uh, that's the article. Article? I don't know. Yeah, never mind. It was oh, so an honor, honor. oh god. Okay. Well, I mean, he's good. He's All good. right, next one. Oh, that was he's, better resolution. Sorry. It's better resolution there. Yeah, it is better. I don't want to see. Don't let me see who does it because if I see. Yeah, don't gonna, let her see. Yeah, that's she saw it. Now. I did see the name. All right. I can do it though. Let's I can be honest. It. I can do it. You want me to do it or you, just pick I, a different? I was most I saw excited name. about this. Okay, so now I saw who did it. I'm liking this so much better than anything you've seen me, shown me so yes. far. So much better. So, so much better. Is it the greatest thing since sliced bread? Absolutely not. Um, but still, there are two pairs talking. One's, you know, one's like, hey, did you hear the one about the guy who crossed the street? And the other one's like, no, I didn't hear that one. He's like, yeah, I, you know, the peanut that crossed the street. He goes, what happened? He was assaulted. <laughs> and I was like, these two pairs are touchy. Um, I'm just liking the simplicity of the colors. The pairs are a little too touchy-touchy. There's too many little things going on with them, like points. Like they look like little, what do you call it? You know, like those little thimbles, you know, when you stick stick pins in the in the little pin cushions. They have a little pin cushion equality to them. Mm. And, the, and they also have a little bit like vectors. Like I can't tell what those mark. This is the kind of paint you got to get up. You got to get, first of all, all paints, you got to get up super close. And you got to smell, you got to look at them. So there's marks on these I'm not reading well. And the scratches on them are super important. These surf- surface touches are important. Right now, they're looking like threads to me, and I'm not reading them so well. My eye, my eyesight 
is kind of weird on, you know, with my glasses. I took my glasses off. I'm liking the blues. Little, not sure I'm loving the concentration of dark blue at the horizon, but it's doing what it needs to do. The shadows, it's, it's a little too precious. I feel like this subject could be done better, but I like it. I like that last sentence she said. Yeah. Okay, close your eyes. Close my eyes. Okay, I'm gonna try to just break this. So you're this. so good at this. This is so I can't fun. It's it. more fun than Twister, I don't know. Okay, ready? Tell me when. Yeah, 1.30, let's go. Go ahead. Oh, is this something off Instagram? Because I can see the Instagram. It's Instagram, yeah. You're showing me something off Instagram? Yep. It's like Todd Wesselman's porn feed. Um, it's S&M derived, I guess, because it's somebody wearing a kind of a rubber or some sort of bodice or something like that. And it's coitus, you know, in an interesting position. A guy's holding up this woman, but the, the color is so self-conscious and wants to be read like a like um you know the guys in veggie tales i just keep seeing it like the guy who, the lead oh, character of veggie tales like you know that it wants to be like a kind of a gestalt like it wants to be read as shape or face or form and so i've never i am a little bit biased in that i've never really liked that kind of colored abstraction one hand blue one hand flesh background purple background blue oh the background here is blue but the background here is purple but the background here and then his testicles are just yeah that is it um it's not bad man or a woman would it change any opinion i just want to say one i don't want to lose touch with what i was going to say which i'm about to lose touch with and i'm not sure is that i would rather get in touch with the feeling that i feel like it's freezing like why would somebody because i can't really tell what the penis is doing in the the redness of the, you know, I, I'm not sure how pleasurable or how violating this is, and I'm, I'm, and it's that form, and I, and I'm not sure whether this is supposed to be that edgy discernment of is it pleasure or is it pain, and so, and also being a woman, I'm not too pleased with that aspect of it, so I don't know that I like it. It's making me a little uncomfortable. Wow, thank you. Okay, last one. Last is one. this the last time? I had more. I, had I know, more. but I feel like this might be tiring her. Her back is hurting. I'm, no, my back is hurting. I'm, I'm loving, loving it. it. She just started like with I'm, this. The... I'm learning. Mm. I don't know if it's a Clifford Still or if it's somebody who's trying to look like Clifford Still, but it looks like a Clifford Still. So I can't, you know, tell. Um, so I guess I have to look at Clifford Still or not Clifford Still and say what I really think of him. Um, I've always liked his work. I'm just going to respond. I like the abstraction. It's not the greatest I've ever seen at all. Um, the lines and where the edges of the different colors. And it's also nice and simple, except for the moments of like this kind of ochre and that's not quite working there. And then there, there, there. So these, these little punctuation marks of color, which, you know, abstractionists of a certain time, Frankenthaler did, you know, color field painters did. And that's like what they did at the time. That was like their way of conveying mood and space and time. It, I'm not, I'm just going to read it as again, as feeling, all right? And, and not talk about abstraction and edges and how successful or not the, the, the positive and negative and the light and dark spaces are. Um, and I think they're relatively successful. It's violent in a way, the palette. 
Um, it's got a Maltese falcony kind of palette color, you know, to it. Um, but I find the shapes really compelling as either form or landscape. And there seems to be a lot of anger and contention in it. So, you know, I'm kind of digging it. I don't know if I'd want to live with it at all. It bothers me. Yeah, you got to keep doing it. She's a genius. She's a genius. This is a Philip, per Philip Perlstein, can't say it. And it's also in reproduction, which is awful. I'm guessing it's probably pretty large. The scale of this would be really important to me. You know how much, how big I was in relation to it, hmm. whether or not the, the women were life-size or larger than myself or smaller than myself, especially where it was hung to if I was below her buttocks or above them, you know, hmm. where, who, who chose to hang this. Um, it's lovely. It's really well done beefs i'm gonna have and i just feel like i have to have beefs because you like you seem to like when i get mad she's she's chopped off at the top of the head and compositionally it turns her leg into a marvelous pinion you know leg as fulcrum for self or something her leg is so huge and it's just jutting out this this woman's leg is bisecting also the fact that it's like a wire um, ice cream chair, you know, the preciousness of those chairs, and it's clearly like a studio thing. Well, let's get the wire chair. And it's a useless chair. You can't sit in that chair. And it's also in the shape of a heart, which is this meaningless thing about love, and that the heart is inverted of the other woman's breasts, you know, the same shape, and, it's, and that her left breast is cut off by her, the other woman's knee, hand behind the chair hand visible behind the the through that wire ice cream chair which is just not even a chair anymore it's just a structure so that we have foot and hand and foot and hand and digits so many digits and closed eyes so that the eyes are just another part of the pattern and then a kind of woven aztec i don't know what kind of ethnicity textile and then the the parquet floor which is such a western domestic trope and then her ring the woman's turquoise ring so there's a lot of markers of things here that i think aren't really being tweaked enough but um because the turquoise is the kind of thing that a culture like that might sell to westerners to make money you know i guess i i wonder where academic the academic in painting gets to leave off as a trope like okay it's an academic painting so that's why it's so good or when you have to say no it's a dumb as elf to delve and yawn this has to be in the same you know thing hmm. how come your face isn't there how come her body is is architectural is, is like a stool what are you studying here mr pearlstein what precisely are you studying what aspect of woman are you showing hmm. is she a chair too is she a wire form is she a shadow, just a, a thing that casts shadows? What is she? So object and person, I, I wonder, I'm, I'm questioning the genre itself here, I guess, because you're forcing me to look at it absolutely on a, TV, on a screen, out of context, a small screen. And it's, like I said, to me, this is all about scale and my encounter with it in this space is really going to change my reading of it. It's, it's, it's overemphasizing certain parts of this painting that I think weren't meant to be overemphasized. Just really responding to that wire. Wire, twisty wire, chair, and the other chair, and legs, chair legs. I love that question you gave. Chastity belt. She... It's just a chastity belt sort of shape. 
childhood and the hand and the circle and the hands and the toes not really not really able to you know hands and toes digits should be able to act on things should be able to grasp things and be instrument use them as instruments and here they're they're just useless just leaning like clubs mm they're not yeah they're not show of the listless fingers show of the listless digits is what it is the 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 ru- the, the pattern in the the digits and the things sticking out of the textile have more you know agency than the the, the fingers you're amazing it's shocking this is the last one and then again it's how am i encountering this how big is it i'm assuming it's lisa yuskovich so i'm just going to assume it's a contemporary painting and um, it's kind of the inverse of what I'm feeling about the Pearlstein. Hmm. Hmm. Digits here are not rendered. They're like little froggy digits and little stand-ins for digits. Not at all. Um, you know, this Daphne and Apollo thing of, you know, Daphne turning into the tree and Apollo's chasing her and that's how she evades him. And I was just reading some gender studies I don't know something you know reading that myth and that depiction of the myth of her turning into the laurel trees in a very different way and the person was taking great offense to that and how resentful they were of escaping you know but this is the case it looks like two women and an embrace you know but still you know in that other picture one person is being held up the other person seems to be doing the holding you don't know who's doing the holding you don't know who's being the held who is held and who is what and then the tree obscuring what we would need to see which is more of their jest more of their expressions and how they feel and they just seem to be becoming the tree and the trees obscuring them so they don't look so happy it's just gotten this kind of this listless tweeny sexuality that i see in a lot of these kinds of paintings this sort of tweeny, tumescent um, girls. They're very girl. You know, I just don't know where their agency is, really, as girl. I'm, I'm, I'm not that good with this kind of painting. I'm, I'm just not, I'm not buying or digging the branches as breaking up their faces and their, their, their heads in that way, because it seems like they're, knowingly or willfully compositionally stretching out their heads and chopping them and turning them into different eyeballs into different places and I'm not sure that I buy the forms you know moving in that way when the rest of the language of the painting is so you know those plastic bubbles that you used to make you used to blow into those things they're like plastic and you can make they were bubbles but you could make them out of out of they were like a toy in the 70s. That came in a tube. They came in a tube, yeah. It's definitely much more interesting than the Pearlstein in certain sexual ways, in certain female ways. Hmm. Um, I find it compelling. Hmm. I find it compelling, but I'm not buying certain levels of tropes of the depiction and what this person's choosing to, to not tell me. Not, I'm not digging it. Is that Lisa Yuskovich? Yes. Yeah. We're hoping to have her on the show. 
Don't do that. <laughs> well, ladies and gentlemen, you just heard a beautiful mind. Thank you so much, Sarah, for coming on. Thank you. All right. We made it to the end. Two hours and 30 minutes long. Hopefully you fell in love with Sarah. I just did all over again editing this thing. She's the best. We covered so many interesting ideas that it's it's actually hard to make a distilled statement about what that awesome interaction was. But I guess I'll just say this. One of the reasons that I think Sarah is so special is that she does see teaching as a partnership and a sacred relationship. And in order to be effective, the teacher has to have humility, patience, and compassion for the student in a really spiritual way. It's a very sensitive and intimate exchange of trust that the good teacher does not abuse. And I really, really love that. You know, the exchange is the reward, not the result. And that is where she and I overlap as teachers and as mystics. So I just found it incredibly interesting to hear what she had to say about it. And it, of course, spanned into so many other things, you know. What is, what is art making? How do we think about it? Let's ask the hard questions that nobody knows the answer to. It's so worth it. And that's really the reason that I do this podcast. I get so much out of it. I even like editing it. I like imagining that you guys are listening to this. It's awesome. Um, I just want to remind you guys to rate and review the podcast because I think it makes a difference. I think it helps us get more people to listen to it. And then um, leave a message for us on the voicemail. We want to play it at the end of the next episode. Just tell us you know, what you're doing in your studio. If you liked one of the episodes a lot, tell us why. Um, 929-267-4830. That's the number. Again, it's 929-267-4830. All right, take care of yourselves and go make something.